This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato. Um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort, as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. 
So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 329 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am so excited to bring on a good friend of mine, firefighter and MMA coach Chris Hickman. Now, this episode is released today for a couple of reasons that are very powerful. The first is Chris's best friend, local Ocala firefighter Tommy Sauer, passed away a few weeks ago, and he's being laid to rest today, July 11th, 2020. So I wanted to honor Tommy by putting this out on this day. The second reason is amidst this crazy, polarizing, hate-filled argument that we are seeing spewed on social media, spewed on mainstream media... There are men and women in the world that are doing incredible things to mentor in struggling communities. And Chris has created an amazing mentorship program for the fire service. He started from the ground up to the point where now he has included not only the city of Ocala, but Marion County, the surrounding county. And they have an attendance of usually about 30 candidates that are from, you know, young age, about 14 through till older adults. And this has created an opportunity for anyone of any walk of life, it's a free program, to come and learn how to be the best firefighter candidate they can be. So many of these young men and women have now entered the fire academy, many of whom have been employed and many more are going to be employed very soon. So while this them and us war is being portrayed, the solution to better firefighters, better police officers is mentorship and selection processes. The solution to racism within some of these communities is diversity as far as skills, as far as personalities. And the only way that we can bring more and more men and women from all communities in cities and counties is by giving them an opportunity to enter that profession and be well prepared for that profession. So I cannot stress enough how much everyone needs to listen to this very powerful episode from Chris. Before we get to that interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Each five-star rating makes us more and more visible to people looking for a project like this. And then this is a free library of content for you, the world. So all I ask in return is you pay it forward and you share these incredible men and women's stories so they can get to other people who also need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you my good friend, Chris Hickman. Enjoy. Chris, welcome to Casa de Gearing, as I call it now, which is such a cheesy name for a house from a non-Spanish speaker. Oh. <laughs> well, I appreciate you having me. This has been a long time in the making. I think uh, two guys that are both super busy to make actual face-to-face contact, even without COVID in place, is amazing. But yet, just the opportunity to hang out and uh, spend some time talking about, you know, things we both love. This is a great opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because when you first walked through the door, you were met with Ty and you were Ty's very first martial arts instructor when he was, 
I mean, shit, I don't know, three, I think. Yeah, it was, he was a little guy that, and it's funny because it's just like you reconnect with folks, especially, uh, I've always said the folks that you bleed and sweat with are the folks you connect with. And throughout life, uh, with martial arts, uh, even in training folks in the fire service, it's about that bond that is totally unique to those of us that have spent our lives serving. That's, that's just such a unique experience. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because I know everyone that I've, go to the hero challenge 343 challenge in orlando mm-hmm. it's the same faces you see a lot of the time you know same up here with with what you guys are doing um you know even the fit pit up in um marin oh, county yeah. now so yeah you see people say oh there's no thin red line thin blue line i, I say go to the gyms you'll see the brotherhood there yeah and the organizational um hierarchy if you will i think like most organizations you're always going to have the same 10 percent of folks who get engaged and involved and uh, engagement can be different in involvement because you can be present somewhere just by attendance, but actually truly be engaged and actually interact and do life with the people that you're with makes a totally different setting. Absolutely. All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning. So okay. tell me where you were born and what your family dynamic was, what your parents did. And wow. Your that was a long time ago nowadays. <laughs> uh, no, I was actually uh, born in Tennessee, uh, a big old city called Morristown. And uh, it's crazy because uh, growing up with young parents, uh, I ended up bouncing around a lot as a child. Uh, I lived in a lot of different places. Not that I had a bad childhood. I just had a different childhood and I had to basically learn how to bond quickly and adapt quickly with the folks that were true to me. Not and and not decipher those that weren't as loyal as, you know, as kids growing up, you trust a lot of folks. But at the same time, you start narrowing down who you can truly lean on when times are tough. And I was blessed, fortunate enough. um, My middle school and early high school years, I had a chance to go to Hawaii where um I had a different life experience than a lot of teenagers because now with all the cultural sensitivity and diversity training, they called it, we called it life there. And as a military brat thrust into a public school setting, you found real quick that uh, I stand out a, a little bit in most settings, but especially there, I was the only white redheaded kid in any of my school photos. So I was known as the Howley kid with red hair. So for me, it, it was nothing, um, It's kind of like stepping back in time, though, when you come off the plane here back on the mainland, when some of the I don't know if you'd call it just the lack of respect for other culture and other upbringings, how folks react to change or challenge. It's a totally different environment. And I think that has helped me so much more as an adult, because the fact that when you face it early on, you develop the ability to adapt. But also you learn how to accept people where they are in life, too. And I think that has helped me as a first responder, as a mentor, and just basically how to be a good friend and family member. Yeah, and I've I've had that conversation with a few people about how powerful traveling is and how I think the enemy of of prejudice is traveling. You know, you get to see, like, I grew up being told what what a, you know, horrible group of people the french were and then i went to france and i'm like um they seem fine to me (laughs) and it's funny how we develop stereotypes because if you take two three-year-olds there's no stereotypes but you say take that same group at 23 and they have already formulated opinions attitudes and mindsets to folks that 
they've never met before or never even experienced, but they, because the, the thought process has, and I shouldn't even say thought, let's say brainwashing at times, because let's face it, the, the younger generations are easy to influence at times through social media, through the programming. And we have to be careful as those that are a little bit older to bring reason and truth to situations. Absolutely. Yeah. And I use that analogy a lot as well. I mean, with race, with sexual orientation, anything like when you go to a pre-K and there's a bunch of three-year-olds playing together, they're not in the, you know, the Asian group and the black group and the white group. They're whoever likes kicking the football is with the football, Mm -hmm. all colors and creeds. And whoever likes drawing is there with the crayons. And I always ask them like, what, at what point do we start becoming little shitbags? You know, if, if we're led that way and it's, it's something I think we need to really look at because that is where prejudice and hate is really learned is those formative younger years. And I, and people have so many different reasons why people the way they are. And there's nothing that says uh, because you're born into a certain socioeconomic background that you're going to be a certain way. But there are folks that will foster that development. There are folks that are if you have adults that don't trust that don't respect that don't do basically common just human basic needs but they're like you said shitbags for the better word they are not going to breed folks who want to have better than what they've already been enthrusted into half the kids that we see nowadays that have problems well so do their prop their parents so but there was always the reality of when we were kids you can be anything you can be that you want whatever you want to be you can thrust yourself into however what is it now now you can't even be healthy without the fear of covid you can't be that they like our media makes you fearful at times and you have to be a strong enough warrior mindset to say listen i'm gonna be the best person i can be doing the best under whatever your circumstances are but half these folks they don't trust each other more or less themselves to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, as an observation, when we were young, there was more of a push from the materialistic side. So it was the the message I think a lot of TV commercials pushed was you don't have enough yet. But if you have this thing, this toy, this Winnebago, whatever it is, then you've really made it. And I think there's been a shift now. That was a horrible way of, no. of you know, uh, teaching the the uh, the nation. But now it's it's fear. Oh, bur- you know, burglars are going to try and murder you to so get this home security device. And oh, you know, if you if you fall, you're gonna you're gonna bleed to death on the floor. So you need this little button to go around your neck. And it's just it's this fear based stuff now. And COVID it was it was a heyday for them. Now they're like, well, we can peddle fear for months and months and months, and we're allowed to. So it's it's heartbreaking to see the the message that we're going to talk about, hopefully, which is, um, you know, mental and physical health and, and resilience has been lost in the conversation, and it's all about fear. It's all about running from this this virus. Well, I think that for what we see in our career path uh, presently, it's the mindset of more. So if you have fear, you're going to have the the media is going to push more fear if you're going to have happiness more happiness if you're going to have hatred and all kinds of racial discontent that's what the media is going to do so that more mindset just helps to overcome just reasoning and that's where folks that just need to take a step back and think for themselves versus letting the media think for them absolutely well back to your childhood you obviously ended up becoming pretty physical later in life were you an athlete back then too i um i had a great childhood as far as being growing up in hawaii you had an opportunity to surf boogie board uh 
Makapu Point was the boogie board capital of the world back then. And it was an amazing place on Oahu, uh, getting a chance to surf, you know, and uh, boogie board with some of the best in the world because that's where everyone came. And with that, uh, played football, got involved in martial arts, uh, basically learned that if you were going to be the, the one white kid in the school, that you were going to probably be tough because every day you come to school, there's going to be a little bit of physical altercations. And it more so when I say tough, it, not that I won every fight. That was not it at all. It was just the opposite. There was a lot of resilience in the sense that bouncing around a lot as a child makes you kind of uh, tough mentally. But when you see bullying firsthand and you experience it, it helps to change how you view. And actually, I think that would probably be my weakness if I said now is the fact that the stand up for the person that can't stand up for themselves at times. I find I seem to somehow find myself in that setting a lot, not even by choice at times. Yeah, but I think that's what makes us wear the badges that we do, and that's why this recent event with um, George Floyd was was so horrendous. Because we're supposed to be the protectors, and we are the ones that step up. Like you said, I'm sitting here at 170 pounds. I'm not an intimidating figure at all, but you're still going to do what you can to to protect you know the the weak from the bullies. And that that's what we do. We step in, and you put yourself in harm's way, and you also you emotionally put yourself in a position that most folks aren't willing to deal with on a daily basis. And I think uh, sometimes it does. It it takes a toll. And even good stress is still stress. And we forget that as first responders. I think uh, sometimes we need to take a step back. I, I look back to my childhood and especially the time spent in Hawaii. And uh, during that time of uh, so much change was going on. This is right when the gangs were really coming up as far as the Crips and the Bloods and all that on the mainland. And it wasn't until they started coming over there to the islands and this is a much smaller area. So you figure any gang activity as a kid, uh, you're going to see probably closer up in that. And it wasn't until you start seeing violence firsthand and that it changes your view of when people think that they're doing things in the name of justice. Really, it's just it's being vigilantes. It's being a little bit out of control and a lot like what we're seeing today and the the looting and some of these vicious acts that we're seeing take place uh, is pretty dangerous because I don't know that folks are doing it, you know, truly under the right reasons. No, no, absolutely not. Now, what, how old were you until you left Hawaii? I came back to the mainland at 14, really in, 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 um, did the high school sports things, wrestling, football, weightlifting, but fell in love with martial arts. Truly, you know, uh, as a kid, uh, I don't think there's anyone that sees that, you know, Saturday afternoon Kung Fu theater that you get involved and you start plugging away. And I ran into, uh, you know, some young folks uh, when I first moved here and they were talking about this martial arts program and uh, is run by a former retired um, uh, Marine Corps uh, Sergeant and uh, Charlie Gray was his name and he thrived on discipline. It, if one thing you got and it, this was just basically what you would call an, uh, an ugly knuckle club, meaning that they trained hard. They were consistent with training. You, you fought pretty regularly as far as uh, they called it sparring. But when you're fighting for your life, I call it fighting. So uh, and as kids, I, I've learned that if you've never had a bloody nose, you have, you face life differently. If you've if you've ever had a busted lip or a bloody nose, uh, you you face challenge with a little bit of a reality that says this might hurt in the process, but it's worth it. And I think that in martial arts, uh, 
we like everyone, you start off with the mindset of I'm going to be a master in reality. If you can just master yourself and keep yourself on a straight path, you're doing good. I think that uh, Charlie uh, became such a mentor to me that helped me as a young person realize that there's a lot more to life than just what's in front of you. That initial what's in front of me right now that people get kind of tunnel vision and they forget that honor, respect, integrity, the things that we started off in martial arts that you've lost over time through the popularity of fighting. Fighting and martial arts are two different things. And folks who seem to think that uh, because someone's a world champion fighter, that means they're a great martial artist. That doesn't always correlate and doesn't relate to uh, one another because the fact is simple. Violence is easy. Controlled violence. That's, you know, and that's mastery that we all work toward as kids. We were like, oh, we wanted to break the board. Well, what if you had a board that didn't break easily? You know, did you stop if you hit it one time and didn't? And, and there are folks out there right now. And there's the McDojo mindset that that everyone talks about that. Oh, well, they, they use the thin boards or they score the boards before the kids go to break them. And then they find out that if it's a real board, they can't break it. And I think for kids nowadays, martial arts, just the basic of martial arts is very important because it teaches them how to be successful even under stressful times. Yeah, that was that awesome video. I posted it um, probably three months ago now. And it was a little kid that was trying to break the board. And this board was just laughing at him. And he was pretty young. But I forget. It was it was a sensei, I think. But they they were all so encouraging. But they didn't. They still didn't break give it up. Yeah, exactly. And I think he hit it like three or four times. And then when he finally broke it, the look in, on his face went from, you know, bawling his eyes out to this joy. All his friends ran out and, you know, like gave him a hug. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a huge lesson you know, from that. I think with martial arts in general, because from karate, like everyone, um, this was right when the start of the UFC was taken off. Uh, my dear friend and brother tom sour both of us came through karate together and kickboxing wrestling and then he came to me with the concept one day of hey let's get involved in this whole uh back then it was called no holds barred fighting and uh i was like okay i'm a young guy didn't have a whole lot of common sense so we jumped on board started training i think we did our first fights in 96 um had a great time, had a, a a lot of learning back then, got a chance to train with some of the greats with the Silvera brothers, the top team guys, had a chance, Mike Lee uh, down at the jungle, Seth Petrozelli, those guys, but also had a chance to meet guys that are now, I guess you'd call them famous in the martial arts setting and the MMA setting, especially because they were the the pioneers, you know, Dan Severn, Tito Ortiz, all, Chuck Liddell, all these guys that we had met just through common contact but we actually made some really good friends i mean the guys from tap out dan caldwell tim uh mask these guys that founded tap out when we first met the guys from tap out they're selling stuff out of tupperware bins out of the back of a car mm -hmm. so to see where they are now it shows you that there's something about that generation of folks if they were fighting 
or doing anything related to the MMA business. There had to be something special about their character. Is that what brought them to Ocala specifically for that one episode? That one episode was about uh, paying it forward because we had such a friendship and bond, and especially with Tom and, uh, and and Mass. They hit it off. They were both super creative dudes that were – anyone who knew Mass knew that he just could not um, – he, like if he, he would seek Tom out, you know, because Tom was just always, uh, you know – when you're 250 pounds of Tourette's, people you can't help but notice you. But also, it just that those two together. I mean, we did trips talking about it's crazy. Uh, some of our earlier days, especially with uh, that was with Rings USA. We were over in Hawaii, rented a car. I remember renting a car because I was the only one that had enough money. That we were in it ridiculous because we were so broke, all of us, but we were so happy. And we traveled the island for a week, and the littlest. Uh, Isuzu Ranger that you got all these meathead crazy guys hanging outside of, but we had the best time. And what I found, especially in that particular moment, was that if you enjoy the people you're with, it doesn't matter what the conditions are. And those guys would have had your back whether you are a nobody or if you're a world champion. And that was the thing with Tap Out that that made me respect those guys most because in the beginning, uh Nobody knows who you are, but once you get a little bit of fame and notoriety, everybody wants on your coattails. And those guys have never changed. They, uh, they've done things here in Ocala. They, you know, with Tom specifically, Tom was great because he represented Tap Out wherever he went, but he did it because he loved them. He didn't, the t shirts and all that were great, but it wasn't never about what they gave us or, you know, what you could get out of the situation. It was just representing the era. And I think that you don't see that anymore. You don't see companies that just represent a mindset. Yeah. And we like to see that, you know, oh, well, I, I wear this because it's a cool looking shirt or whatever. But even in the fire service nowadays, there's a lot of cool logos out there, but very few folks wear it because it re- reflects the vision of what the fire service puts out. Yeah. It's hard. And it is because uh, fighting is funny, though. We're going back to fighting, but we had a chance to train with so many different diverse folks that because you're in the fight game, you get other opportunities to train with people you wouldn't normally get to, um, you know, go and do judo at some of the guys that are some of the best in the game, uh, get choked out by some of the the best guys in the business, but they weren't doing it to be mean. Um, Matt, especially uh, Hughes, uh, training with uh, top team or not top team. I'm sorry. uh, With, Team Extreme is what they were called them through Pat Militich mm-hmm. and those guys. And those guys, um, you know, traveling up to Davenport, Iowa, Monty Cox, who is a legend in the MMA game, they brought us in and treated us like family. And the guys, we were the crazy boys from Florida. That's just, you know, it's just like Brad Kohler described it as, uh, oh, those guys, you know, and he and Brad, Brad, you know, was one of the early UFC stars and, uh, he was very transparent uh, and that's what we liked especially the guys in the fight game back then it was a lot different because nobody knew a whole lot about what the other person did or didn't know so we treated everyone like they were dangerous but until you got in the ring and you found out where they sat and even training together it's crazy once people watch a few youtube videos how they become experts nobody knows until and and mike tyson put it best everybody's a champ until you punch them in the nose and then Mm -hmm. it's amazing what happens uh and i think for each of us in in life uh we need to work together to figure out how to make 
things better instead of just tear each other apart and be destructive because by nature it's easy to break stuff it's a whole nother thing to reinforce and build stuff up and i think that's what's so great about uh through martial arts it has allowed me some you know i got a chance to meet a lot of my you know childhood you know bill wallace you know guys you know you get joe lewis you know these guys that as as kids you're like you know you see the guys on tv and you're like i want to be like that guy and then you get a chance to meet them in person. And then you just like, wow, Il Chung Lee, these guys that you saw in all the black belt magazines, but you're like, I wonder what they're like in person. And then you meet them. They're like, Oh, they're real people. Mm-hmm. And especially Bill Wallace. Um, you know, he's a Florida guy. A lot of folks don't know. Oh, and yeah. And, uh, Bill actually came over a few years back to uh, one of our kids who had uh, we had a black belt testing and total surprise. A mutual friend of ours stopped over with him. And uh, for the kids that were testing, they just knew him as somebody important. They didn't know who he was. Me as the guy who was proctoring the test. I was like a kid in a candy store because to, <laughs> to me, that meant that, you know, here I am getting a chance to be, you know, side by side with one of my childhood, you know, idols. And, and, and a lot of folks. You know, what makes Bill, you know, really a cool story is because he has he started off in judo and injured his hip. And that's how he ended up with that one leg that left was just leg. I'm left crazy legged. good. I mean, to the point and I mean, even up recently, he's I mean, but that's what you want. You want people that inspire you that overcome something. Here's the problem. A guy who's a young 25 year old who has no injuries and dominates everybody that's okay but that's that's called youth it's a real champion of someone who overcomes something to defy the odds yeah to break the barriers to change the mold in terms of what we think as success is and i think it's not till you get a little bit older and a few more injuries and a few life experiences that change what your perspective is and i think that's what helps with uh as a parent nowadays, if you don't have other folks to count on that just to bounce stuff off of, sometimes it's a different, it's so different raising kids now than it was probably 10 years ago, 20, and definitely when our parents were raising. Yeah. Well, you touched on a point a little while ago, and uh, Greg Jackson, who's on the show, talked about the same thing. There's a difference between a fighter and a martial artist. And not that I think there's a problem, you know, but but those are two very different paths. And the sad thing is a lot of the, you know, a lot of the martial arts schools kind of are a little McDojo-esque, to, to steal a word, um, because, you know, like you said, the next thing, they're scouring boards and, you know, you're doing it for seven months and you're already a black belt at six years old, you know, so there is that element. But then the combination, you see this with someone like Georges Saint-Pierre, who's like someone I would love to get on the show one day. You see that consummate martial artist who also is an incredible fighter, but you see the way he conducts himself versus some of our fighters that we have at the moment and it's definitely polarizing and i think that you know what you're doing in the fire service is the same as the martial arts journey that i took which is whether what i was taught was that effective is almost irrelevant i had a lot of rude awakenings getting my ass handed to me by the next more um you know more contact style whether it was you know boxing then muay thai then jujitsu but the journey was definitely one that I grew from over and over and over again. And I think that having the humility then of realizing just because you're a British champion at Taekwondo doesn't mean that you're able to even beat a three-month guy in kickboxing because I learned that. Yeah. (laughs) I got my ass handed to me. I think, uh, you know, when we had uh, developed into a fight program ourselves, and that came by default, it just, uh, 
I ended up with an injury and, and we ended up uh, wanting to own our own gym, Tom Sauer and I did. And that's how we came up with the whole USA martial arts with team trauma and all that. And, you know, we ran that for over 20 years, but during that time it was, we developed a lot of great fighters and, uh, to me, it was great watching folks develop, but what I didn't like were the egos that developed with that. Because just because you win a TV show, uh, reality combat experience doesn't mean you are the nicest guy in the world or that you have family values or that you would actually be invited to my house. Um, and it's kind of comical now. I look back, you know, we've had over four guys that, you know, I, I put on um, the Ultimate Fighter show and uh, worked with the producers at uh, length trying to find the right folks for reality TV, especially in a fighting concept when this was totally new. This was uncharted territory. And what they said about the folks we sent to them, everyone was prepared to the best of their ability at that time. And the reality is this, when you got a bunch of 20 something year olds that you lock in a house for seven weeks, Lord knows what you're going to find, you know, at the end of that time period. Yeah. Lock in a house that they give free alcohol. Oh, and they, yeah, they set them up for some challenging times. And trust me, any of the guys that came through our gym were uh, characters. So they made great for reality TV, but they, wow. Um, and, and it's hard too, when you run a successful, uh, martial arts facility but yet you have fighters and then you have the balance of what is where's your heart and that's what came the guys that i started with in the early days there were a different breed of individuals we trained hard together we broke bread together we we did life together the the older i got i noticed in the fight game that the folks that uh don't want to be involved in your life outside what you can do for them are really not your friends they're they're you know business acquaintances and i think that's okay and i think that there's balance but there's a struggle because most martial arts school owners i know in this day and age they have a connection to people it's not that they're trying to develop the next champion as much as that they want to see the best come out in each person they deal with and i think for a lot of us if it wasn't for someone who wanted to invest in us early on, we would never be where we are today. Yeah. Well, even speaking of a great martial artist who was also a good fighter and then has groomed some incredible fighters since is um, Mike Lee, who was my coach in the jungle for intermittently. I think it was like collectively a year and a half because I kept ripping knees apart and <laughs> going and to Mike, medical school. Mike is an awesome, awesome dude because the fact that he never has changed like he's still the same like to me every time i see mike i see the guy who was eating cheeseburgers right up to the time we got on the mat he would literally he's the only guy i've ever seen that had a cheeseburger from he'd have two cheeseburgers before we trained every every session and i don't know how the guy's not 400 pounds but he's still in great shape and choke you out while he's smiling at you at the same time so i got nothing but respect for mike lee and uh, seth both who've uh, they've done a lot for orlando central florida and mma because let's face it it wasn't until uh, probably early 2000s that when you know that first ufs or the ultimate fighter show aired in 2006 that it really took off and, yep that was the fight and uh knowing both of those guys actually if you look up uh in the fight me book that by authored by Forrest, I'm actually in there. I've ref several of his fights. Um, 
and a lot of folks they see that and they're like you've been around that long i'm like unfortunately yes <laughs> but it's you know you see a lot you cha- you change and you adapt and some things you're not willing to budge on some things are non-negotiables and i think that that's okay it makes me human but at the same time for what we see in today's uh, mindset i think that it's okay to be I guess fundamentally, fundamentally structured enough that you know that you shouldn't go to certain places because you know that if you go there, you're going to speak your piece and you're probably going to upset a lot of folks in the process. And folks, they can say what they want, but in reality, you still have to be mindful of what you say to folks. You know, my wife and I always joke, she's like, if you're looking for a problem, you will always find one. And that so holds true to me because you know, having a little German Irish uh, bloodlines, I don't give up and I'm very persistent even when it doesn't suit me well. So that that is uh, it's helped me be successful, though. I will say that that persistence is what helped me not with having a successful run in martial arts and fire service, but also just in life, because I got faith in people when they don't have faith in themselves. And it's just something but sometimes blind luck, I think, that gets me through it because uh seeing hope in folks when they don't have it themselves is something that it, it i think it comes from just caring about folks but it also comes from failing and succeeding yeah well i'm gonna ask you about that so you were a firefighter you, you know were a fighter you're a coach but as long as i've known you i've seen that you an extremely nice person genuinely nice person which is why you know years later we're sitting here um when you look back who are some of the people you think that influenced you to be a good person I definitely, I mean, the fact that my mom didn't kill me at an early age is definitely influential because uh, she could have ended it all. <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. And uh, my uh, aunt and uncle both uh, changed the ones I live with in Hawaii, Valerie and Charlie. They changed my life uh, in only a way that to take me out of a situation that I knew that all the friends and the, during that era that I had and family members were, they ended up either incarcerated or something bad. So to take me from that, that was totally life changing. They showed me that uh, my aunt is the person who probably has influenced me more than most in the simple fact that she showed me how to engage with the person that's in front of me and make them the most important thing in the moment. And I think that's um, something that's always stayed with me. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Uh, my grandmother, who, uh, as cool as stories as sound, she was uh, back in the moonshine days when uh, the FBI up in uh, Kentucky, she was uh, one of the folks who would help relocate fluid products through <laughs> the railroad systems as a kid. And you don't hear stories like that. But in her final days and her periods, we had some great conversations. And she told me about why I'm so crazy like I am in the sense that driven, you know, there's a difference between being ridiculous and being driven. And I think there's you have to have a little both. But I think that our family is uh, we want to be successful. And sometimes it comes at a price. And I think that's driven me to uh, succeed in a lot of things where I've been told no and and no and not right now are very close. And sometimes you just got to it's a matter of what you listen to. Yeah, I know I ever hear no. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I mistook, you know, you I do a lot now. of apologizing these days, <laughs> I've noticed, but I get more accomplished. Uh-huh. I think uh, 
it's okay to if you don't ruffle feathers you're probably not doing anything but as soon as you do something that changes the norm you're going to get some balance somebody's going to get a ripple effect you're going to hear something yeah yeah i don't think what i've learned is jocko pointed out the the battle battle axe um you know attack to my last apartment there's no question that towards the end i was like so frustrated it was just that you know you're stupid for not seeing it the way i see it you know and that absolutely didn't get anything accomplished now i tried other more gentle methods first but what i realize now and even with this this is a change of tack like it's not no you can't it's just that this particular road isn't going to get you there it's not i mean people listening and we know you can be in a department in an organization where you could be heaven sent a god's gift to whatever company and if the person above you feels threatened by you they're going to stop you doing whatever um and i'm not saying i was a heaven and the fire service and the fire service is great at, at uh either suffocating or venting so you got to be careful where you're caught and also what you do with the motion because there are folks that you know what i'm talking about you have certain crews that attack 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 and then there's others that are just nothing but defensive so where do you sit and how do you fall a lot of that based on your personnel that you work with but you can also change that strategy by the way you train together with the way you break bread together and do you make time to hear each other because people where I found the most truth in individuals are traditionally on the gym floor or the church floor. It's not until you find those places that you usually really learn about people because it's not till they hit rock bottom or they feel like they can't physically go any further that you learn what they're really about. Well, speaking of that, so I know faith is a huge thing for you. What was your road into your particular faith? Um, I was, you know, like most kids that grow up in the South, you are scared into religion in the beginning. My grandmother made sure that I was in church on Sunday by picking me up on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when you grow up as a Southern Baptist in the beginning, it's more so of uh, you don't know what a relationship is with God, but you know that you fear devil and the hell and you do not want to spend either you know, you don't want to spend time there. So your best way is to get right with Jesus just so you don't go to hell. So as you grow older and you start realizing that that is so um, it's a little bit of a dated mindset that you get involved in. in this in the 2000s, uh, you know, there was a lot of things happening, especially after 9-11. Uh, it really reinforced uh, my faith and uh, strengthened in uh, 2000. Five, I was going through a lot. In 2006, I had a death of my father. And uh, how that ties into my faith is uh, 2006, uh, I worked my dad's homicide. And a lot of folks don't know that. Cause I don't talk about it a lot. But when his uh, he was involved in altercation, suffocated, basically, it was just a terrible situation. That that And when I got there to the call, it was an address that was familiar, but I didn't know why. Completely dark, what have you. We worked, basically, it was a traumatic arrest, but he was so covered in dirt and what have you with all the tussle that had happened that I didn't even realize it was my dad until I looked down and realized that my dad uh, wore uh, shoes a particular way and he laced them up and I recognized the laces. And at that point, it, it, you know, I realized it was my own father. It was, you know, clearly it's crazy, but 
instead of shutting down, I did just the opposite. I went into hyper-focus, hyper-sensitive, trying to make sure everything we did was no different than I would for any other patient, but made sure everything was on point. Um, that, that changed me though, because at that point, when I realized that that was my own, you know, family member in front of me on the ground, we did, we worked the code all the way to the hospital and, uh, I wasn't able to get him back. But at that point, it, it, something inside me said, this is how I don't want to end up. My dad, uh, he worked as best he could to provide the best he could. And life wasn't always easy for him. And I, I love, you know, the work ethic that, that he showed me. But at the same time, um, you know, he battled with addictions just like everyone else that's out in the world. But, uh, because of that, it was a wrongful death situation. He just, you know, they wanted to call it, you know, self-defense on the other person's behalf. And a lot of folks don't know this, but at that particular time, I was probably my highest high and my lowest low, if that makes sense, because the fact that I, I, I knew that he was in a better place. But at the same time, I felt sorrow on a whole nother level that just made my heart uh, empty. And you couldn't talk to a family member without wondering if they were wondering where I was in the situation because they want to know what happened. They, I basically had to relive it over and over for the better part of 18 months. And with that, though, during that 18 months, I, I was in a bad place at times. I had a new daughter. I had just my life was really going. But what I, I learned is that my faith was there, but it wasn't strong. And when something like that happens, it changes your faith and you have to make a decision at that particular time. Um, I had a lot of people around me, but very few friends. I know that. And it's just like, and what I mean by friends are people that looked out for me and we started reaching out to um, different folks and I found some churches, but finally what I found was what was right in front of me is the ability to read and the Bible's pretty self-explanatory if you pick it up and actually open it so a lot of these folks look for entertainment value when they go to church they got to have a good rock band they got to have a good you know guy who razzle dazzles them with words but more so is is that can you apply what you're actually being taught and I think that's what God was was he clearly has a sense of humor he made guys like us that do folks that we do and, and my relationship uh, with people is straightforward, pretty simple at times. And uh, I realized that I needed to reconnect with God. And, and the best way I could do that was going to a straightforward church, folks who actually preach from a Bible and actually opened it up and actually could read it and not just tell you the, the stories that you wanted to hear to make you feel good, but also the areas that you need to improve on. Greg Jackson is strategy, you know, chess and all that and MMA. But if you take those same kind of things and apply it to life, it's crazy how martial arts show us so much. But then you put it with faith. And what it does is it 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 completes the person, because a lot of folks in the beginning, what they forget about martial arts is they were from a culture. It wasn't just a, you know, a particular person who wanted to pass on how to fight to another person. It was the, 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 the way of living a, a, a fulfilled, you know, a fulfilled life. You know, I think that's where we, we lose the essence of what martial arts started off as. Martial arts started off as a way to reach for more. And that's even with faith, um, folks, they think you have to live by a set of rules. And that's not at it at all. When in reality, if you just treat people like you want to be treated yourself and, and love people you can overcome a lot but we are so in fear of being let down 
that nobody wants to take a chance. Uh, and when, like I said, after my, my dad passed and I went through quite a period of time where I did the EAP thing where they make you go talk to uh, a, a person who's acts like they're intent on listening to you. In reality, you're wondering if they're going to fall asleep during the conversation. And then that's, you know, that was great because after a couple sessions, I got out of there. My whole thing was getting back to the line. Come to find out that, you know, probably because that situation right there, I stayed on a rescue for probably a lot longer than I should have back then because I think I was still chasing what what I feel like I might have been able to do or could have done differently. Yeah, that inability to save is just so crippling. And I can imagine what that felt being your own dad. And it's it happened. So when these guys, you know, and I it's kind of crazy because a lot of folks, you know, they as first responders, they always want to know what's the the best call you've ever run on. I'm like the one we didn't run. (laughs) I mean, what's the worst call? Let's talk about the best call. You know, I don't I mean, nobody sets out. But here's another thing. Serving in your own community, the reality of dealing with people. I mean, right now, if if you deal with an overdose, chances are it's going to be somebody you know through a circle of friends. It's just how it is. I mean, there's not a family that's left in our community that hasn't been touched by this. Yeah. Well, now your your house, I'm assuming, is in your own first year. Is that right? I yeah. I literally I serve not even a mile away from my own home, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. See, and that's the thing I'd never had. So when I lived in in when I worked for Hialeah, I lived up in Pembroke Pines. When I worked for Anaheim, I lived up in the Hollywood area and then Huntington. You know, I was always 15, 20 minutes outside city limits up to an hour and a half. So when I left, I left. And when I left OBT in Orlando, having just found, you know, God knows what on the trail, kind of trauma and misery, I got to kind of just drive into the hills of Marion County and just physically leave it behind. But so many people that either work full-time or are volunteers and then and aren't full-time firefighters and literally may run on a person they just clocked out with two hours ago. Yeah, we've had, uh, it's crazy. Uh, you see an intersection now, especially in a district you serve in on a constant basis. People see it as a red light. You see it as the place where you had a double homicide. You know, you see people who DUIs, you see the place where, you know, Happy places might be a place where you connect with on a different level. And I think that's something that our first responders uh, definitely need to address. I mean, it's a it's a reality that uh, not everything's going to be happy go lucky. But at the same time, we have a morbid sense of humor. Let's face it. When we talk about stuff. We go to places that most people would not dare go. But it's because that's our coping mechanism. I think that um, in all of that we've been involved with, none of it has. uh changed over however i mean 20 years plus now that we've been doing all this craziness and uh people they still have stress they still have things going on and that's the thing you're going on stress that just within the firehouse not to mention whatever family experiences you're going through at that time Mm -hmm. financial (laughs) i mean organizational i mean there's there's the ones on the street that we run and then you come back some of us have a very nurturing environment in our employers and there are because i've seen both sides full extremes there are some where you dread going back because you just did what you were paid to do and now you've got to go and deal with some bs you know fabricated busy work because someone sitting in an office thinks that you shouldn't be 
sitting around between calls. You just, you know, had a, a shaken baby die in your arms and now you got to go back and, you know, God knows what, flow hydrants or, you know, install smoke alarms because God forbid you get to decompress. It's, it's, it's definitely a different line of work when folks uh, who have different trade jobs, when they talk about their different ways of um, how they handle stress, the difference is we handle stress while we're still in the moment that you don't have a, you know, like it's really not structured well enough yet. You know, we talk about it through CISM and all the, the proactive programs out there, but it's not until you make it a part of the process that it really works. Uh, workouts. I mean, that's where every, every firehouse in the country should have the best gym available for the simple fact that we are dealing with stuff that if most folks spent 24 hours with us, they would write books and probably be in a rubber room. So, <laughs> you know, that, that, cause it's a hard, it's, it's, you're seeing people when they're not at their best. Yeah. I'm trying to write a book now so I don't end up in a rubber Yo, room. No, I get it. Because it. And again, it's trying to, <laughs> it's trying to channel all that energy in a direction. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of the fitness then, so coming from a background in MMA, entering the fire service, you know, what has been your journey on the physical health? Um, you know, what you saw early in your career and where you think we should be? It's crazy. I've been a fitness trainer from a very early age. I was one of my first jobs, uh, lifeguard and uh, actual uh, a gym assistant, if you would. I don't even know if it was called a trainer back then, it, but working with folks and helping them uh, thrive in the fitness setting was uh important martial arts it, it basically physical activity and mental health run hand in hand uh, and just like in everyday life the fire service has been slow to adapt to that at times i mean we've been fortunate enough through the guys especially the guys at firefighter functional fitness to, to get involved and be smart enough to realize that there's resources out there that we can engage with but early on it was a lot of it was still you had big firefighter olympic programs so everybody was going to compete once a year so they train specifically for their sports but very seldom did they get together and train like what you see now now the uh the tactical athlete mindset has taken time i mean we were doing the same thing in mma years ago but now it is the way to train it's the whole person not just the one function uh, with fitness though uh fitness and and i would say retirement go hand in hand and and a lot of people say retirement i said that should be our mindset when we're training is how our later years are going to be spent because there's a lot of guys you see that were great firemen when they go to retire they look like they are you know just like any other old professional athlete they look broken down they look busted i'm not taking shots at any of my retired friends i'm just saying that it's a rough rough go of it and then to not take care of your physical well-being during their time in the fire service it just makes life almost impossible mm -hmm. well i see and it breaks my heart but i see a lot of the the firefighters i had especially the last two departments that had like the countdown apps mm -hmm. and probably because anaheim we didn't have that um smartphone you know technology then but i wish people were as aware of when their retirement date is as they are, I mean, excuse me, I wish I were as aware of how short we're supposed to live after retirement as they are counting down to retirement. If you had another app that was a five-year countdown that you started the day you retire, because that's basically our projected time is five years for a first responder, 
have that going through your whole career would that change the way you look at exercise because i mean you talk about us broken we are broken because if you have sleep deprivation you are not able to heal from the stress that you put on your body so the ones that when they say the fit guys always get hurt yes because they're the ones trying to get better but they don't have the rest and recovery because of the 56 hour weeks to achieve that so you know we need to focus like you said on the longevity because the ability to do the job is extremely important and then living longer and actually getting some of your retirement that you work so hard for is also important so it's like a win-win and mm-hmm. yet it's still such a hard sell for a lot of people well i think until i mean like you see a lot of departments now that are struggling with uh wellness programs and uh, uh when as a peer fitness trainer going through uh the program i mean you have to think as as a department what is your cost analysis that's what they always want to know is what is it what are the benefits and the reality is is that if you can change the culture and you can do it in such a way that you add five years to the average lifespan in the department then it's a worthy investment but how do you show that on paper and that's where folks are like oh you know that's the reality of it though uh why if more departments not struggle or push harder for the fitness because i i mean Unfortunately, pensions are based on lifespans. And, uh, I mean, let's face it. If you're, if you're okay with that five years of life after retirement, they're okay with, uh, you know, from an international standpoint, from any investment standpoint, if you're only willing to take five years of returns, they're willing to only pay you for five years. So what you put up with, it shows a lot of, you know, and, and most of it, let's face it though, where most firefighters are tactical athletes of some type, shape or form. They were at some point they were, they were extremely competitive because it's a, it's a pretty tough work environment, but you struggle so hard to get that job. We all, I mean, you, you don't get into the fire service based on just, you know, obscurity or just no willing to thrive if you do it's by you know pure luck but everyone that says it serves on the front lines as a first responder pushes themselves to be where they are uh, however with fitness it's not till you tie it into a personal annual evaluation and that's really that simple i mean you're physical every year i mean we're phys- we're fortunate enough to do life scan every other year but most apartments are i mean it's a struggle for them to afford good straight physicals but the physical doesn't lie the physical straight science and i mean the people base their decision making on science and less on their personal preference it would really change i think how we do business yeah, it's funny you mentioned life scan. I've, I've wanted to get someone on there for a while, and Chief Todd LaDuke mm-hmm. has just reached out, so he's going to come on the show. That, it's a great company. They've done great for us. Every year they've caught uh, folks with early stages of something, so it helps. I mean, and I, every time I talk to folks from around uh, the state, they are quick to point out what a productive uh, process it's been because most physicals, let's face it, you're in, you're out. You don't know what you did if you just had the oil on the car checked or you just felt violated. But no matter what, <laughs> you know, the whole aging with grace thing, that's out the window. But I, I think for where we are, we we're on our way to getting there, but we still have, you know, some steps to to make the progress. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we need to really look at the roadblocks of our wellness. You know, if your administration is a roadblock, then it needs to be addressed. If your own union is a roadblock because they don't want to put the work in to get back to where they need to be physically 
that needs to be addressed. You know, we have to take these people that are stopping us from getting to a place of mental and physical wellness. It's just unacceptable. Well, I think, too, that um, these departments that are hit with these major disasters like you're seeing right now in terms of when I say disaster, uh, these these protests and the the things that are going on in the here and the now those guys are you know when you don't know if you're going to be shot at if you're going to have a brick thrown at you or anything like that it's a different mindset than someone who is um, in a peaceful place that doesn't have a whole lot of discontent but the reality of is they still have a spouse at home that has the same worries Mm -hmm. and folks forget about that and those worries play out to life And I don't think anyone that's married in the fire service has a significant other that doesn't have concerns when we leave to go to work each morning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I know my wife is relieved when I retired. Yeah. You know, I, my wife, she just laughs when I leave nowadays, she's like, okay, I wish them well. I mean, who are you talking about? And she goes, whoever you deal with today. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, um, but again, it's our, our family structure that suffers a lot in some of these, these situations, our kids, you know, when you're placed in high alert status and your kid wants to go out and play with their friend, but yet you have, you, you know, you have certain things that you're, you know, trying to preach to the public. It's hard when your kid wants to just be a kid. Yeah. You're, you know, how do you tell, you know, someone they can't go engage with their grandparent because the community consensus is, is that you, your hugs might kill them. Mm hmm. It changes things. It's very strange at the moment because I've talked about this with a couple of guests. Science now has shown Florida was barely touched by this thing on the magnitude. If we're talking about anything that's going to be above and beyond any other infectious disease that, you know, no one bats an eyelid at, um, which is great. Fantastic news. But you see this and you hear it, this, this, philosophy this brainwashing like if you go to a store and you're not wearing a mask and i've heard so many you know first responders so many firefighters say this when they're at the store trying to buy something people chewing them out why aren't you wearing a mask as they talk through their crocheted mask or the one that you know their nose is hanging over like a little peepee you know and you're like the the lack of education you've managed to breed hate through complete ignorance like i get it new york a month ago, there was an issue, overcrowding, whatever, but there was an issue. And the selfless thing to do was to, to isolate. I totally get it. But to, to be shaming people now where we have basically nothing going on. There is no curve to flatten right now because, you know, it's, it's, it's around, but it's not any more significant than anything else is going on. The, the negativity, the, the fear of human interaction at the moment is is awful. I mean, I'm really it, it's the the social element of this is far more concerning to me than the viral element. Uh, yeah, I think that a lot of the folks that uh, now that you've pretty much put gloves, mask, or body condoms on to keep yourself isolated from the world, it has created a, a an environment now where people are so confused to watch two people who are great friends not know if they should high five fist bump elbows or or you know there's not a, a glossary of terms you can refer to to see what's the proper etiquette for these kind of situations however you know it's like third grade all over again wash your hands don't touch your face don't touch your friend's face you know basic common sense stuff goes a long way 
And I think if we got back to basics, I think that a lot of these issues would work themselves out. Yeah. Uh, Ty has been singing this song called The No-No Square. I don't know if you heard that song. Mm. But it goes, don't touch me there. This is my No-No Square. <laughs> that seems to be the level of education that we need. Just don't touch each other's yes, No-No Squares. Yeah, the No-No Squares. I think we're going to be good. I'd look like a quilt <laughs> if that's the case. <laughs> Well, speaking of current events, obviously, okay. as we sit here now, which is what, June 2nd, um, you know, we've got the horrendous uh, murder of George Floyd and the the episode I did with Danny Dwyer a little while ago, we touched on this. We touched on um, the the concept of diversity, how there's disparity or disparity. I don't know what word I'm trying to look for, but anyway, um, uh, imbalance in you know, uh, poorer, more desperate communities, whatever skin color creed from getting into the fire service. But the ridiculous knee jerk is the diversity check in the box side. And in that conversation, I talked about how how powerful mentoring is and how powerful um, the results I've seen, including Ethan, my own son, going through your mentor program. And that seems to be a magnification of what we're seeing now. Like today, everyone's blacked out their Instagram. I have too, just as a show of solidarity. But do I think it's going to do anything? No, it's 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 token. And that's the ultimate word now. Right. It's token. But what we do need is an ongoing conversation about this. An ongoing, or clearly in raising the standards in the first responder profession so we don't end up with you know, horrendous deaths that are filmed, the murder of a black man or, you know, a white man, whatever. Someone, because a first responder doesn't do their job. And I want to highlight uh, Drew Hughes, a 13-year-old um, kid who fell over skateboarding and a medic intubated him esophageally. Um, didn't even need to be intubated. Complete cluster from beginning to end. And he ended up being um, uh, paralyzed but not um, sedated. So he was fully aware that he was um, suffocating to death and he died as a 13-year-old white boy. So, you know, malpractice occurs in the police force, in the fire service, in EMS, in you know, corrections and all these things. And those are just really fucking awful responders who have no business being there. But then the other side, this racial tension is it's not about checking boxes either. We're not looking for a box of crayons. You know, we're looking right. for amazing men and women from all these different cultures to be lifted up to have those mentors to have those those figures um to draw out they might want to be a firefighter they might want to be a chemist they might want to be maybe a good president <laughs> left or right imagine that um so i really want to explore the concept of mentoring and what you're doing because i see that as a solution a free program where anyone from you know a super affluent kid that man, you know, lives in a mansion in Ocala through to somewhere that maybe is on the streets or living in a very poor area have equal opportunities to come to you know as long as they got clothes on that's pretty much it then then they can they can learn to be a firefighter so that's a huge introduction but so lead wow. me through the inception of that and and the success that you've seen we've been working with the mentorship concept now for years in terms of what we wanted to do with it however it took to it took us till about three years to unveil it and about three years ago um our chief presently um 
he addressed uh, the need that we need to be more proactive in how we recruit, not just recruiting the folks to check boxes, but the right people. And I was blessed enough that he trusted me, saw what I've been doing in the community already and said, what do you need? And I said, just the opportunity. If you give me the go ahead. And we started running. And I at that time had no formal structure to what the program was going to look like because I wanted to see what the community needs were. And a lot of folks try to throw programs up and implement ideas without any kind of pulse. Like we check, you know, you want to check to see what the community needs are. But the reality was is opportunities. Our community needs opportunities to get kids involved, engaged, get them from an early age. When we first started our mentorship program, it was pretty much an 18 and up program. Uh, we've graduated that concept down to where we're starting them as young as 14 because we found through our research and studies that by the time if I waited to high school for an average candidate that they would have some type of hiccup or legal problem by age 16. So we try to combat that by going younger and actually engaging them in middle school. Folks think that I'm crazy for doing that. But if I help to change your hopes early on, it's easier to keep uh, a candidate plugged in and engaged with a system that provides opportunities, no matter what your your race, your your financial background, any of that. But also the fact that they have to work to get there. And that's why the folks that are in the community see it as great. They're providing opportunities for our youth and folks who want to pursue a career. Uh, but we're also engaging on a level where community service and community impact is a big part of what we do. When there's a struggle or say, for instance, uh, an emergency such as hurricane season, uh, our kids are always the first to help the disabled with filling sandbags and taking, you know, taking the steps proactively to get ahead of the game, not waiting for there to be a problem. And People are so eager to uh, embrace these kids. Uh, our, our kids have, since we started starting our program, uh, they have been more accepting of the fact that we are truly getting people employed. And that's something a lot of programs say they, they want to do, but they don't do. And that's a hard thing to, because if I dangle a carrot and then I, you never actually see it at the end, whether you win or not, it, it, you still have nothing to shoot for. Uh, these kids are getting, since our inception, we'll, by the end of this year, we'll have uh, nearly 30 kids that have been employed through the fire service. Um, and I have kids that are going the route of fire service, paramedic, um, one on his way to becoming a nurse anesthetist. Uh, there's programs like ours that are around the country, but what makes ours is so unique is again, I embrace it one kid at a time with the kid that's in front of me and what do they need to help them be successful? Sometimes it's nothing more than an encouraging word. Other times it's, you know, we need to do some financial planning. We need to work on what it's going to take for them to be successful because Every kid has different struggles, but especially even once they get to go to school, you still have the needs of what is it going to take to get to and from school? What do you eat while you're there? How do you survive? And what we're doing is changing the culture because we're encouraging the ranks to get plugged in with the kids. We want our our folks that work on the front lines to engage these kids and find out what they're about. The average kid with us spends approximately 14 months. In 14 months, I have someone that I get the chance to study their work habits, their attendance records, their physical fitness standards. And I need, I need to help, you know, in areas that I need to encourage them in, but also I need them to take personal accountability. 
You know, we talk about how we, we are each humble. We each, you know, have this air about us as we're first responders, but these kids, they start from the ground up. I mean, it is instilled in them that you have to be a humble person, not just a firefighter or a police officer, or you have to be humble, but you also have to be sincere. You got to know that what you do serves a purpose. And these kids, they have, with COVID, most organizations died off. They literally quit existence in that we had kids, uh, you know, that they were doing virtual workouts. That's how we plugged in. A lot of people were like, what do you mean virtual workouts? We literally made some online videos that kept our kids plugged in. But as soon as we said that we were uh, regrouping and getting back in our regular structure, I had to restructure our meeting sessions because we had such an over influx of new people. That's amazing. And you tell me that, you know, when a time when most communities are scared to death about contact and yet you're trying to figure out how to wait to get 60 kids, you know, structured throughout a day. So there's no more than seven at a time. So you don't have 10 in a group because of instructors and student ratios. Uh, we're talking now with the Florida fire chiefs association, the, you know, the state, you know, division of fire standards and training. They see what we're doing. They're acknowledging, but the success is based on the fact that we are openly pursuing folks who have a heart to want to serve. And it doesn't matter what your race, what you, you know, it's all inclusive. We're not trying to exclude anyone. However, when you come, you're going to work, you're going to earn, you're going to learn what the value of a person's work ethic is. Because we've all had folks that as a probie, you see that person that just you're not sure if they should be there or not. And not that we're the ones that choose who stays or goes. But at the same time, their work ethic speaks for itself. If you have only three people and one third of that is ineffective, that does nothing for the workforce. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean your kids came to my class quite a lot as well. Yes. And, and they and they love uh, Coach James put it on them. So <laughs> <laughs> they love it. And actually, uh, we're getting ready. Uh, that's something we just talked about. So with workouts, well, most kids don't like being pushed. These kids thrive. The harder I push on them as a group, they realize it's not how fast they complete the task as much as if they complete it as a group, mm -hmm. as a team. Which is the fire service. That's the fire service. Not a race. And these, some of these folks, and we do, or we do our monthly PT test, which is the standards they have to do just to get into fire college. And then we do uh, a pad test usually every 60 days. And a lot of folks are like, what's a pad test? That's basically the entrance for any department to get in there. Then they practice CPAT in there as well during their 30 day period. So they're constantly, they're not just training. And I think that's a lot of problems with mo most programs is they're training with a purpose. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we're doing that's engaging these kids is we engage with their families, their teachers, the folks in the community that know them and that, that are holding accountable. Most kids, they don't they don't step up their game because no one holds them accountable. These kids want to be held accountable and they want to be part of something. What I'm seeing with mentor programs and yours is you know obviously specifically mentoring for the, the fire service and it's doing so well. But the Give Team in Orlando, which is in Paramore, which is a very, very, you know, poor dangerous neighborhood um and then you've got the new york cops and kids boxing club pat russo had in um in new york is like you said there's this incentive there's this element of giving back to the community there's a sense of purpose they're you know male female role models whatever's missing in that particular child's life and there's accountability and i loved seeing like when i went to to your classes when i dropped ethan off 
you know, they were there 10, 15 minutes before they needed to be, which is, you know, as we yeah, said, in the fire being, being early is, is paramount to success. And for the kids, they, how I explain it to a lot of our candidates is simple. We have the same amount of time each day. And especially for the time given for instruction. And I can spend that in time either correcting and coaching or I can give that as far as leading. And that's up to them on how they. So self-policing powers is a great thing. And with kids, peer pressure works both ways. And that has been our biggest. Um, I think it's been a big part of what we do that's made the kids that they want to honor each other not just me and that you know the the, the staff that works we work well together and and it's crazy is because it's a co-op i mean we got both agencies involved which if you can't usually get two fire departments to work together on any project especially something on this magnitude but the fact that we have two fire agencies that you know that's nearly 800 people that we're working together with on how to improve the quality of the folks that work and participate in our community and with the whole mentorship mindset, it's a lot of, it's just like sword making. You know, we go back to martial arts a little bit, but it's about forging and about what is like a samurai sword is a lot like developing a person. There's many layers to it that has to be constantly molded into something that makes value. In the beginning, it's just a big piece of steel. Otherwise, we just got to keep plucking away and chipping away and just making it refined so that when they go into the workforce, they're the best candidate for the job by training, not just by default. I think that's a big part of what, you know, we talked about earlier is if you just get the job because you're able to check a box, that's one thing. But if you get the job because you're the best suited and every one of our kids that have gone on to get a job, there's always a a tryout process. So they have to go into a competition mindset. Yeah. And they're prepared. I mean, just, just to kind of paint the picture. I mean, these are kids that have done a huge amount in bunker gear, did all this PT, know how to tie knots, how to throw ladders, how to, um, you know, be in search mazes. So you've given them the tools for success. So, you know, one of the things I hate hearing is, um, you know, the whole millennial snowflake thing it drives me crazy because that just shows you that a parent and or a, you know, what should be a mentor hasn't done their job. A kid is a kid. Right. So in their journey, of course, yeah, would, did they grow up on a farm? No, mo- I did. Most, but most, yeah. Yeah, I'm a farm kid yeah. from England, though. Yes. There's not many people who grew no. up on a farm. You, so You have a unique box you can check on that yeah. one. Because, but, okay, for instance, how many kids have the opportunity to work a summer job nowadays? Truly work it. Not go work a couple hours here or there, but work from the beginning of school let out to the time school starts back. None, really. None. Okay, and yet uh, our generation is so great about complaining about the work ethic of the younger folks. Well, we raised them. We have to stop griping and start fixing. And the way we fix is we set examples. People like this show here. This show started off with, you know, you know, you use a tactic that if you find is not working, you reapply it in a different way. And you become more effective in that way. And I think the same with mentoring. If you're not constantly adapting your program to what the needs of your your folks are, you're not going to be able to meet needs at all. And quite honestly, you, once you lose effect, effectiveness with any tool, you don't have a need for it. And I think for mentorship, the mentors themselves have to reevaluate constantly. Am I setting the best example? Am I truly doing what I say I'm doing for these kids? Because kids, uh, the great thing about youth 
is you haven't developed your ability to lie like you do as an older person. And transparency is priceless. Someone who's young and honorable and has nothing but, you know, energy is great to direct. But as you get older, sometimes you don't have the energy that you used to. You don't have the drive that you used to. You you definitely don't have the vision that you used to. And I think that's where the physical fitness standards hard. But if most departments would embrace this mentorship program, you could literally change their culture of physical activity just by engaging with the youth, by doing programs like ours that would help their whole department change their mindset about activity. Just by showing and demonstrating, at least we'd get some of these crews out and physically moving in such a way that would help our crew at our stations. They are all on board. They they work together with us. And it wasn't without a process. I mean, when you first start telling people that, okay, we're going to have over 40 to 50 people come to a station at various times throughout the day, we're going to change your, you know, we had, it was a, it was a process and um, it, it takes from upper management all the way down to the tailboard though. It takes participation and it takes uh, a process uh, between monthly surveys that we're doing. Like, I mean, when I started this program, I didn't think I'd be doing monthly surveys, but I got to be held accountable folks are like what do you mean surveys I, we literally put each of our candidates put something in their hands to grade us most mentors think that they have all the answers that they don't need to be checked off on anything when you show that accountability it's amazing because the more honest they are the better you know response you can give to the, what the needs are because if kids are saying that their needs aren't being met it's like a football team who never touches the football and then they're expected to go to a big game it's going to be interesting. And I mean, I think that's what with these kids, they want to be challenged. They want to be taught, but they also want you to show them what works. And that's what we want to be able to do. And and quite honestly, what I think what's a big part of our program, too, is most of the people who serve in the program come back to help out. And I don't. We don't necessarily graduate folks out of the program because I want them to stay plugged in. I like talking to the kids that have already come through the program, gotten gainful employment, and I get a chance to hear from them firsthand what their experiences are because it helps me as a mentor to make sure that I'm giving the right message, but also to the folks that are working toward getting employment that they get firsthand knowledge from the people who've come through the program. Mm -hmm. Testimonials work so much better when the person's right in front of you. Now, Greg, there was an older gentleman that was trying to get into fishing game was mm-hmm. he did he come through you guys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that was an interesting one too so of course you've got these young young people but now you've got an opportunity it's some, maybe someone's worked in accounting for 20 years and they want to do it and well, how do you, how does a 45 year old man become a firefighter or a fishing game officer or whatever and and that's what's so amazing is he basically filtered through you kind of did some training with me and and started his journey that way and you have folks that we live in an era where Folks retire from one job and pick up another career. It happens all the time. And we're like, what? I mean, we've had retired Air Force colonels come back and go through the fire college. And you're thinking, you know, what? And they're in their 60s. And and it can be done. I just know that the standards cannot be changed. And as long as we maintain a standard, then we're not watering down a process that's been set in place. But at the same time, we talk and we preach about the standard, but do we hold it on an annual basis? Most departments don't. And if you watch the decline of a typical employee after the five-year mark, you'll see a steady 
decline in performance. And by performance, I mean an annual, they're basically, they're physical, not because most, most departments around the country aren't doing an annual testing or standardized um, performance evaluation. Even though that um, with the mentorship program, what we've also embraced is kids that have had problems in the past. If we catch them early enough, if they've had a problem, they can work through our program and we can work together to come up with solutions to give give them opportunities they wouldn't have otherwise. And people are like, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, it, kids early on make mistakes. We know that we're people, we're humans. But at the same time, you have to have uh, an awareness about what the options are and be transparent with them. If you tell them that, you know, that you can't help them get a job in the fire service, but yet you can help them gain employment in another capacity. I don't think there's anything wrong at all with having them involved in our program. Now, what's your take on history? Because an interesting um, perspective I've gained from this, I had uh, Brooke Carrasco who went to um, a inmate program. She got kind of at wrong place, wrong time. Um, got a record and then became a federal, you know, a firefighter through Cal Fire. I mean, so they didn't look down on the record. And then the same with uh, Brendan McDonough you know, in, in the Only the Brave story, the, the Prescott 19. Same thing. Eric Marsh, who sadly passed away, gave him a chance and, and got him on that crew. Yet in municipal fire service, and I've talked, I've told this story a number of times, so I apologize to everyone who's sick of hearing it, but my very first testing was down south it's one of those ones where you do it wasn't fire team but a similar one you do like one written one you know assessment and city of miami beach was there and they were handing out pre-apps and i was like well sweet so i checked everything have you ever done this yeah i tried that a while ago you know 10 years ago nothing happened and the guy literally i mean literally all but screwed it up and threw it in my face he said you will never you know you were disqualified you will never work with us I'm talking about taking some happy pills and maybe, right, da- right. maybe dance a lot in a club in Jap- Japan 10 years prior. But um, it made me realize that in our fire service, a lot of us are basically forced to lie to get in. Have you ever done all this naughty stuff? You may you know, have not been caught. And there or- are a lot of departments that drew that complete lie detectors as part of your oh, employment. I've, I've passed three of them. But the reality <laughs> of it is, is do you want honesty? Because really what you're looking for is, is that does someone have the ability to tell the truth even when it's challenging? Exactly. Because so, that's what our job requires us to do. Yeah. Now, if you have a history of child molestation. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're, that's if you're touching thing. the no-no zone, we need not mm-hmm, yeah, be a no-no square. <laughs> exactly. But if you try drugs, if, you know, even if you, you got a DUI back in the day, whatever it was, this expecting some choir boy to walk in with the Bible is in his hand, you know, and, and, and no, I've never done anything bad. I, I just crocheted for the last 20 years and watched, you know, watched the God knows what. And, and that's not the fire service. You want men and women who are going to be able to do and see the things that we have to. Chances are those are people with a history. Well, look at the military. Look at how they're changing constantly. And, and folks that are in these jobs, I'm not. Um, again, I, I would rather value someone's word versus what their past presents. Yeah, you honesty know, is the most to, important thing. To me, I just want to know that when it hits the fan, you're going to be able to keep it together and be able to keep your work. You still that, be there when I turn around. It. And that's, <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of folks that they make it through a, 
a lie detector and all these other things prior to getting in. And then they still have problems once they get employed. It, it happens. We are humans. That is part of our that's the sad part about all this is that you can do all these steps and still have problems once you get employed because we're still dealing with people mm-hmm. until they have robots that are firefighters. You're still going to have people problems. And I think for like the, with the mentorship, one of the things that we're working with that's kind of unique to our program is we teach temperament training in a, in a sense that we're addressing stress inoculation through different physical activities, but we're handling each kid in such a way that we're trying to identify where their stressors are. And then once we can focus in on those stressors and help them to adjust and make solid decisions, even when high stressful moments. So when they do go to fire college or when they do go to work, they have a history of being put under pressure, even if it's just a simple, you know, a blackout hood or you take away the ability to hear like you used to, you know, things that we take for granted that you do in the fire service that most people will never experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, what we do is can be terrifying. You know, and I remember when I went through fire school in, in Orlando, it's gone now, but there was a series of tubes that you had to go through that I'm not exactly a big guy at all. And I, I think I went in Superman style. Oh, yeah. Me. I think that was a, a mistake. I want to <laughs> know who designs these ideas that say, okay, as a firefighter, we're going to shove you in a tube because I have never in all the house fires I've been in. You haven't been in a tube? I've never climbed in, in a like tube. And actually, tubes. I think I think <laughs> that I would probably keep my guys out of tubes if I was doing my job. I but. would say tube, yeah, <laughs> not a good thing. But again, I get the whole thing and it was climbing the ladder and right, everything. Right. But yeah, I mean, it, it is... It is a high stress and that is what's important, you know, and, right. and this whole, you know, wanting people that have never done anything wrong. And then, and then as I had to lie, you say your way through polygraphs, um, is you're probably excluding a large portion of candidates who would have been really, really good. But that one little blip stopped them from being police officer, firefighter, you know, whatever it was. And, and here again, and we we tell the kids, especially in our program from the get go, is to be transparent and be honest from the beginning. And then let's work forward. Uh, and if most um, administrations work that way, uh, I think they can pretty much overcome a lot of the adversity that you're getting right now. But if you have a felony, there are some things I can't overcome. If you have like where you're touching you know, little kids who has, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be invited to the party, no. but, uh, I know that, uh, you fish. are going to, you know, you're, but again, how many kids that you know of that wrong place, wrong time, you know, they, they, you know, guilty by association nowadays, if you have a fight in school, you could possibly be charged, you know, with aggravated assault. Mm-hmm. Well, even look at, look at drugs. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. You know, what, what would have been in a felony, whatever before, now you can walk into a dispensary in Colorado and just buy it, you know. So some some of our laws are so ridiculous, and you know, I've I've done episodes yep. on drug prohibition. They're founded on racism and hate, anyway. That these people have records for things that I hope one day won't even be an issue, anyway. Right, I, I, and I think that's something that you're going to see change. The biggest uh, the problem that we see right now is is that like even for fire college, you could take. Uh, a drug test one day and then the next day go do drugs. It doesn't like you're not doing a drug testing every day. Someone told me the exact thing the other day. Yeah. It's funny you say that. And, and, uh, because we work through our mentorship program, we work with SAD, which is students against destructive decisions. 
we work as that as a reality. We work into the process of why addictions work to begin with. Like why do people fall onto addictions and how does it increase? And addictions can be something as simple as your telephone. We have so many folks that they have already, you know, a destructive mindset. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but if we're not careful, even something good for us can be destructive. If it takes away our focus from the things that make quality of life, you know, important. And I think for, you know, especially those that are addicted to adrenaline, addicted to anything is very easy. And if you're in the fire service, you're probably not the kind of person who likes to sit and, and crochet crochet <laughs> your mask for the COVID. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but again, I think that, you know, I, we've dealt with kids that have had uh, something in their past that they, you know, we go back and we address it head on. Um, I've worked with some of the kids in uh, drug court and some people say, well, how can you even work with a kid like that? And I'm like, why can't you work with a kid like that? Why wouldn't you work with a kid like that? Because you could be the changing force at 15, 16 years old. You could help them have a very productive adulthood mm-hmm. and they have life experience to, that is, you know, going to help them move forward. Yeah. And it's a human being that's using drugs to fill some sort of void from God knows what happened mm-hmm. prior. And that's, that's something I want to transition to. So you had a tragic um, overdose of one of your kids recently. You know, we know we lost a local firefighter to an overdose not too long ago. Um, and he's one of three that I knew that, that we lost. And, you know, what what is awful to me is each one of those was forced into the shadows because of the stigma around addiction as well and it not being viewed as a mental health issue. So we can talk about suicidal day and do push-ups but, you know, like you said, but an addict, oh, why, why, why are you helping an addict, Chris? You know, and it's so, so sad. So, you know, what are you seeing from from that side, you know, the effects of addiction? With addiction, it, 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 I think we need to change kind of some of our, um, instead of diagnosis, I think that uh, observations. You need to change wording and labeling because labels are what get people to hate on each other to begin with. We are infamous for it. We've done it through the beginning of time. If somebody has a different view than we do, they're an enemy. And I think even with addiction issues, like it's the enemy of the state almost, we need to change that culture and embrace it. We need, I mean, it's crazy. They'll, we have billions and all this money for Narcan, but yet we could fix these issues with actual therapy and with, you know, we are we're blessed in the fact that we're able to, to touch on it with the community. But within the fire service itself, it's really hard. A lot of folks don't want to think that there's, you know, most people think that there's no way it could be our organization, which you look at, you know, worldwide speaking 20 percent of every organization out there has some kind of addiction issues yeah well factor in alcohol uh, oh yeah and, no and, we and see that's the thing just the ones that we think are quote unquote legal they're okay but if you have folks who were doing anything that's off that spectrum you are definitely you that's yeah and i mean we've been fortunate our you know our administration has been embracing the fact of our mental health as is an issue and that if there's problems to come forward and that they'll find help they've we've done stuff with the uh international facility but the reality is is people don't realize how early on we could catch some of this stuff before it you know you've been on painkillers for five years can't we address this some of this has to come up in your physical some of this has to come up in your monthly 
or I should say monthly, but I mean, every six months, in my opinion, we should be having emotional, some kind of an emotional physical, if you will. There's no way you see everything that a firefighter first responder sees and doesn't have some kind of an effect. And if you're not affected, I want to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. We all do. (laughs) I think that when there are people that are doing well, that's the thing, but we're all affected. To some extent, okay, you're not addicted to a medication. You're not addicted to, what are you addicted to? There's a reality. When you broaden the term of, let's say, addicted to not stuff that's a felony. Let's Mm -hmm. just put it that way. Overtime. Overtime. We all do it. I know. There, I mean, there are, there are different facets for addiction. And I think we have to be, we should embrace that from the beginning though. That's what we're trying to do in our mentorship mindset because the fact that these kids see it firsthand. Kids are, I mean, they're little VCRs. I I should say digital recorders. I don't want to date myself, (laughs) but they, they capture everything. And they replay it over and over and they relive it. And then they, they reduplicate whatever we're, we're doing. So with that though, if you are embracing a mindset of denial, then that's what they're going to do. And we, as a department, as an organization, as, as an industry, we, if we're truly a brotherhood, like we say we are, we need to be looking out for our brothers. Even if they don't identify, we need to be able to at least bring it to the surface. And, and most of that, honestly, most firefighters don't like being uh, called to the floor or called to the mat, so to speak, on um, a particular issue. But at the same time, we need to be doing more debriefing. We need to be doing more just actual bringing it out to the like, OK, based on your reports this year, you've had, you know, 12 fatalities. And, you know, that's that might and people don't think about it unless you're watching law and order, seeing that many dead people on a regular basis is not a common occurrence no no you know uh and during the times that we live in seeing the amount of folks that are near death and brought back that has a reaction on your psyche as well to give someone a medication that only works on narcotics and then you bring them back but you've brought that same person back five times how does that affect you and we need to be smart enough to go okay can you have you know, compassion fatigue is a reality. Yeah. I mean, we've uh, all seen it <laughs> and we all, time. yeah. I mean, we all have that one patient that we all know by a first name basis and we get there and we address them. And, uh, one of the things I try to, you know, work with the kids on through our mentorship program is to treat them like it's a real emergency, even if it's not because to them to, and, and what I mean by it's not is, if they called to them, it could be the worst day of their life. Even they've, they've called you a hundred times that year already. That hundredth time could be, could be the real one. And I know I'm going to get pushed back from some folks that go, Oh, well, you know, if it's BS the other 99 times, chances are it's going to be BS again. True. But the problem is, is that you're seeing two year guys with burnout already. Why is that? And, and that shouldn't be accepted. That should be the, you know, we need to address that issue. And that's where some of the burnout comes from is that you have young guys that are getting burned out early on the job and no one says anything about it. Yeah. And I think that there's two elements. One is the core load, which ironically is good at the moment, but people are already saying now it's starting to kick back up again. <sighs> oh, yeah. But the other thing, I think there's also, I've seen it with my own eyes, 
you said it perfectly. There's this kind of, you know, VCR mentality, photocopy mentality where they see the 15 year guy bitching about every fucking call. Oh, this is going to be fucking bullshit. Okay, Nostradamus, why don't we get there first before you know? And so now the two year guy is starting to say, oh, fucking hell, you know, and it's, and he actually isn't burnt out, you know, and some of them are, but there's a lot I see of copycatting. Like, so as you're, as a senior guy or, you know, at least a, you know, a, a pseudo veteran, that you have to check yourself because a you're cancerous to the station and then b you're going to be that guy that leaves the med box in the rig assuming it's bullshit and now everyone's scrambling because it's a full arrest on the floor and you got nothing in your hands Uh and and people are people always want to hope for the best at the same time you always have to be as a first responder prepared for the worst and i think for us sometimes it's our own checkbox that we need to be making sure that if this you know what is our can you know do we have a plan that's really going to be effective in a time of stress and most of these folks are so more worried about complacency that they don't worry about you know what their medical skills are how many guys on a fire truck did not go you know if i hear it once i've heard a thousand times how well i'm on a fire truck so i'm a fireman and that's what i'm here for and you're laughing because you're like okay maybe 40 years ago that was a true statement but now and you're 22 so yeah (laughs) yeah i was gonna say we are um in the industry of uh you know fire and safety Mm-hmm. And it should be safety and fire now because as much medical that we run, most departments nationwide are 80% or greater. Now I had to go to EMT school before I could go to fire school in Florida. So what does that say? And it, yeah, but you know why? Because departments can keep you as a EMT. And I think for um, the, the younger generation, what is different too is creating experiences for them to serve with nothing in it for them. See, a lot of times we've trained people to respond. We give them something in return for, so like with our kids between filling sandbags, uh, going to, there's a couple of clinics that we work with in the community and help them with logistical vital signs, that kind of stuff, settings that will put these kids into a real service mindset, but also make sure there's nothing involved in it for them other than the experience. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, some kids are, that's a reality check. There are folks who are like, wait a second, nobody patted me on the back. Nobody gave me a high five. And, you know, I didn't get a T-shirt for that, you know, experience. But again, with the kids that stick it out, they see in the big picture of it. Man, there's a lot of great things. We've worked with kids that don't have like what I think helps our program more than most is we have it pay it, have them pay it forward to the generation below them. And like one of the initiatives that we've taken this last year is reading to third grade and a lot of the, we have two schools we work with in our community directly and we've taken our mentor kids and had them go with us into the elementary schools to read to the third graders brilliant and the, the mindset behind that is simple um it was told to me um that our third grade fcat scores which is our standardized testing here they correlate to our prison population in 10 years and like in our community, we have like a 54%, uh, you know, fail rate with these certain standardized tests. That's over half. So, you know, what does that tell us? And these kids, if you don't have a chance in hell of passing something, you're not going to try your your hardest. And Especially with the, those tests. Ty, yeah. Ty, I've talked about this before. He got A, B on a roll and fails the FCAT every year. Standardized testing is not... Uh, 
effective for measuring how brilliant these children are. And these kids um, are, they pick up on that. And with our program, what we have found is through our accountability with taking the kids into the schools, the behaviors changed, the mindsets have changed, and even the how they correlate their behavior for their teachers after the kids are gone. And people are still just kind of, they're, they're, they're iffy because they can't trust the fact that just kids coming in and investing to other kids is effective. Mm-hmm. But that's more than anything, that's the whole village mindset. We're still, we can't do business like we, you know, like we don't have issues. We have to address issues and we have to work proactively to solve problems in our community. Yeah. Well, I had a guy from Finland, Passy Salberg on, who's, uh, I think he was like three or four episodes ago now. Um, And the reason why Finland and a lot of the Scandinavian countries do so well in their global, you know, overall um, rankings is because they look at the kid as the whole person and they factor in mental health and play and nutrition and you know like you said the the um the ability to kind of have have control so even in the schools they don't micromanage and i had this kind of realization when i was listening to him talk i've recently talked about organizational stress and how horrendous that is for mental health and you work in a shitty department where you can't even open a compartment door without someone saying, you need to grab this tool, we're going to stand here, we're going to, you know, and that's exactly what happens to our children. Come in at this time, sit down, don't say anything, take this test, do this homework, and there isn't any exploration, any play, any, you know. So I think that's such an important element, and the more we can kind of go to that more that type of model, and like you said, the more we can value our teachers, require higher education from them, but give them more pay they do shape our children for christ's sake um you know that we can affect that so you have mentoring in the community you have a, a change in the school system that is how you change the future and stop men like george floyd from from being murdered in the community by you know complete miseducation and, and blatant racism well and when it comes to uh developing a product and that's really what we're doing people are products nowadays let's they're in the workforce we are you know we're products of a a a family that's really what this is this is a fire the fire service is supposed to be a family and the product if that's the case we know that we have all these compartments within this product and we need to develop physically emotionally mentally intellectually spiritually and all those components make this whole person but when you start taking cracking these parts in these compartments what you get are these addiction issues and these these basically they're redirections because think about it if somebody's struggling in a certain one of those areas and they they're redirecting their energy somewhere else there's probably going to be an imbalance and that's where we get the emotional baggage that we all have unfortunately because we're we're, we're not taught early on that this is a part of the job Nobody signed you up with that. Hey, sign this disclaimer, this disclaimer that states that you're getting ready to be probably under the most emotional, you know, mental stress you've ever experienced in your life. And we want you to keep it to yourself because, you know, between HIPAA and all the things that we see and do in this job, you're not supposed to talk to the public. No, or even each other. Each other. That's what what we do. And one thing I can (laughs) tell you about firemen is we go above and beyond, you know, and my brothers in law enforcement do the same thing. We try to protect everybody except ourselves. And that's where we have to have better coping tools because, but we have to address it early on. If you go into the pool and you don't know how to swim 
and you go into the deep end. Probably not a good idea. But yet emotionally, you can be a first year employee here subjected to everything bad that happens within a given department. And nobody has anything to think otherwise. Why is that? It just makes no sense, you know, but we need to we need to equip the future generation of of first responders with mentor programs that actually address mental health as part of their programs. And and with that, if you think that drug addiction shouldn't be addressed early on, that's that's just a misconception because kids need to know that there are folks who have addiction issues. Some of our kids might have parents with addiction issues. Reality of it is, is if you're looking at statistics, 20% of our kids have a family member that they know of that is going to have some kind of reaction to uh, drug activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and we, even some of our crew. Oh, yeah. And, and it's right within our own ranks. So uh, and some folks get offended when you bring reality to light. And it's OK. You know, uh, I think if we're addressing issues that are real issues, it will help to grow. I think the, the the mentorship component for what we're doing right now, it's producing quality firefighters who have employment opportunities who will continue to thrive in the community after they're, they're uh, working. And I think for us, what that allows us to do is develop mentors within itself. Because if you're not discipling people in a way that they feel like they can pay it forward, you're really not giving them a, a, a vehicle. You're just giving them a job. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's not, we're not, we're not in the business of giving jobs. Uh, I want, I want someone who has a, a fulfilled career that after 30 years, they look back and go, wow. And I got blessed. I mean, early on, uh, a lot of folks, uh, I had someone that uh, came to us. Uh, I was a paramedic at the time, 20 years ago now, and uh, offered me a job opportunity. Said, listen, we can't find at that particular time, there was a shortage of paramedics and our department was going to that direction and they came to me and gave me that opportunity. So I had a chance to pass a physical agility test, do fire college and go to school. When I, when I came out to the fire college, my mindset was simple. I was at a point in my life where change needed to take place. I had seven years on a transport truck at that time. And I was, uh, I was in the mindset of either I'm going to die right here on the fire ground or I'm going to be the best firefighter I can be. And that's just kind of where I left it. And at that point, you know, over 20 years have passed and uh, it's been one of the greatest rides ever. And I think that for me, when I talk to these kids, I can truly tell them from a perspective that someone took a chance on me and that's what we're doing with them. Yeah. Well, that's what I see, too, is like, you know, you've got these kids. We've all been in these houses, you know, whatever. Again, there's no specific color or creed, but it's an environment where they're not doomed, but the the environment certainly is not set up for them to thrive. So they're still looking for love, guided, you know, guidance, whatever, and that can be with a local thug drug dealer, or it could possibly be with a policeman, of, you know, a female firefighter, whatever it is. Someone who takes them by the hand and said, "Look, this is somewhere else that you can you can go. You can you can do this. You know, actually believe in them." Are there any Specific stories, you don't have to name names where, you know, someone has come from a pretty desperate oh, yeah. um, background. From our first, from our first, uh, students who just gained successful employment that they both were, uh, a couple that were challenged that they didn't have, uh, that opportunity that to thrive until they were given, they were given an introduction. They were introduced to me, the program, and they were, uh, our first candidates and it was crazy because i you know 
not only were they new candidates, but they were engaged, which, you know, in the fire service is challenging enough. And then they both wanted to go through at the same time. So they both wanted to go through fire college at the same time. They wanted to, and it wasn't easy. It was a two year process that took a lot of, and, and for me, what I find um, challenging people will give up on themselves before we give up on them because just because someone fails a test or they, you know, maybe they fail out of a program the first time they think that people are going to turn their backs on them. And to me, it, it, you know, it's an opportunity for them to dust themselves off, get refocused and reapply themselves. And we've had kids that within our program that have gone back to school after, you know, the first time wasn't successful and they go back and then they get done with it. And they tell me that, that was the biggest accomplishment to date for them, like as a person. And with that comes the, the the realization that not everyone has the best study habits. So I'm doing things as a mentor that I didn't think I was teaching. I thought we were going to be teaching people how to be firefighters. And honestly, all we're doing is investing in people. Some of these kids, um, I have one particular young man that, uh, he kept coming out to the program and every, every time we'd get together, he threw up. And I mean, just like this kid, I didn't know there was that much bodily fluids. <laughs> and, uh, and he, uh, I finally asked him, why do you keep doing this to yourself? Do you really want this? Or what is it that you, why do you keep punishing yourself like this? And he says that, uh, he told me that the program gave him a purpose greater than what he'd been doing up to that point. He was a partier and he was still partying up to that point. And then he finally got into fire college and he's graduated from fire college and he's just about ready to finish up EMT and he already has gainful employment. He said that it saved his life, comes from a family of addiction, you know, had a lot of trauma early on in life, but because our program being consistent, that it was there every time he needed it. And for us, that consistency, uh, our program meets three times a week. Typically, the when I looked at uh, you know, we dealt with the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, and I got a chance last year to speak at a symposium where all the major departments from around the country gathered in Texas. And uh, when you start finding out about most of these agencies, they're meeting a few times a month. So to see what we do, where we're meeting three times a week, you know, and then that's on, you know, in addition to these community service processes. We, we, we have constant, in, constant involvement with the kids, but we, what we've done is we've created a social environment that these kids can adapt to a family structure because that's the first real gathering for them. And that's why we keep the squads in like a squad type format, seven person mindset. What we're trying to do is create a firehouse culture within each squad. And, and what it does is helps them to, I don't put all the kids that get along together either just like the firehouse. I want to make it realistic. So I take kids <laughs> that have difference of opinions and views and I make those kids work together within the groups to create that diversity that we need to really represent the, the mindsets in the firehouse. That's where the diversity should be. Personality yes. is not skin color. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, with that as well, um, with some of these children that don't have the parents at home, they could be extremely affluent i mean I, I i worked on a summer camp for six years in new york and some of those kids like, never saw their parents they went from boarding school to summer camp back to boarding school so there wasn't parental involvement there so it's not even about you know socioeconomic but there are households where parents just aren't helping their kids so there's no motivation for the kids to work academically are you seeing 
aha moments when these kids realize that math and, and some of these other skills now are important because you can use them. Because I, I mean, I was a straight C student in school and a straight A student in fire school because I realized, okay, now this makes sense. Now I get, yeah, this, this, this math can be applied to drug calculations and friction loss and all that kind of stuff. So what are you seeing there as far as the fire service being a motivator for academia? Well, first off is that social media is raising our children right now. We need to get more involved. And if you want to get to know your kid, you actually have to know your kid. And that sounds crazy, but a lot of folks are so with the now we live in a culture where two parents have to work and they have to have more and they have to. But what happens is that now you lose contact with your children. If the only time you see your children is for an hour and a half at night and two hours on and, you know, maybe two hours over the weekend. You're not really seeing your kids, but yet your kids on social media four hours a day. That just shows you that, you know, and actually probably more than that. But with the disconnect, um, there's a lot of kids that we have come in contact with that they're being recruited already, whether it's drug dealers, whether it's uh, influences of the bad persuasion. So the fact that they just happened to find the mentorship program was great because these kids, like I said, as early as middle schools, we're finding drug dealers. Things that we would never think of. And you're like, what? But these kids are being faced with problems that we never had to deal with as kids. So for us to constantly be in a recruitment mindset, it's and it's not even recruitment. It's just being genuine. I think that's the difference is I'm not selling a product. I'm I'm working with people. So for us, these kids are important. And, and the people that are working with the kids are truly engaged. They're not just getting, you know, it's not an overtime gig. It's not a, you know, a side hustle. It's something that it you have to love children. You have to love the investment process and you have to love seeing our culture change one kid at a time. And it, people, like you said in the beginning, a lot of folks want change now. I get that. But I have to I look at it as a seven year investment. If I want crops to, to be able to be reaped in seven years, I got to plant now. I got to develop the kids. I got to develop the talent and these will be our leaders in seven years. Half the kids that we have now will be probably in the fire service and leading roles. So it takes time. Yeah. Well, you mentioned as well about the, the drugs. It's another thing with the whole legalization. Imagine a world where you couldn't make money slinging dope anymore because it was legal. Same way as you can't go in the back streets of Ocala and sell bottles of bud. And now I'm good. I'll get it from Publix. Thanks. You know, it, it would take the power away from so many criminal elements and therefore there will be less pull on kids. You know, the, yeah, I mean, well, that whole you have the word right now is I mean, I want to say disabling, but the power of, of kids that have lived in system mindsets for the last 30, 40 years, as far as whole families of generations, when you give them the opportunity to declare their own future, it's powerful. However, there's pushback even from their own families. It's not that, and it, and it has nothing at all to do with race or, or preference. It has to, everything to do with your vision of the future. And some folks see their kids in a role different than what the fire service offers. Some people get scared to death that their kids willing to run into a burning building. And I find it very unique in the sense that everyone who wants to be a first responder, especially in the fire service, there's a little crazy involved with each of us, but also the willingness to put yourself in front of harm's way to to help a, a fellow human being. Mm -hmm. 
and doesn't have anything to do with their color of their skin. As at most times in a fire setting, you and I both know you can't see your hand in front of your face. No. So the victim you rescue, you don't know what color they are. Yeah, or the the crew member that, that showed up on another rig that's right. wearing their gear. And, and you, it's because that's where your heart is. That's what makes you do this job. And if, to be effective, you have to be able to put everything aside and do your job. And it has nothing at all to do with someone's color, someone's preference, or even just their, you know, their personal agendas. Cause with, with everybody covered up in gear and it's, it's amazing you said that because when I ask kids to, to identify the person that looks different beside them in a blackout room, you can't really do that. No, but yet we all have people we like and people we don't like so much. It's amazing. Just like those three year old kids we were talking about earlier. That is not an issue, you know. But you can tell the shitty firefighter, the one that can't get the gear on, the one that's panicking, the one. The one that's having the bell go off for the last 30 minutes and you haven't figured out that you shouldn't be in the facility. You know, (laughs) know, like if you're um, and a lot of times with our kids too, the stress inoculation portion of what we teach consistently is that stress is something that happens on a daily basis. It's how you handle it that, that defines you as a leader. So for our kids that, you know, I'm not training them to be good candidates in the here and the now. I'm looking at the investment of when it's a life and death decision that needs to be made, you know, seven to 10 years down the road. What what tools do they have in their their mental toolbox? And did we equip them well enough to not just survive, but thrive in a situation of stress? Yeah. Well, you just sparked an interesting kind of analogy in my mind when we look at our professional athletes. And we, you know, watch the documentaries. Some of them fell into it later, but most of them, well, you know, my dad was a baseball player and I was in Little League and, you know, all this stuff. And you follow their journey to where they were. But yet when it comes to the fire service, police service, you just go to school and then out, like we were talking about, sometimes you might not even make it out of school. There's necessity. You haven't even graduated police academy and you're already on the street with an FTO. Um this is a career where lives are at stake. And this is why we're having a discussion because it's not about skin color. It's about preparation of incredible men and women for these professions where lives depend on us. And so why would you not create an environment that mentors the best firefighters, you know, correctional officers, dispatchers, whatever it is, you know, these people that physically or mentally have to perform. And if they do, someone might live. And if they don't, someone might die. And I think for the, it's easy. It's kind of like uh, patient care. If someone has trauma, it's easy to see typically if there's bleeding. However, emotional trauma, it can't be seen. It can't until later on in the game where you see them falling off in performance, their mental psych, their sleep patterns. But it, let's take uh, NFL, for instance. If you took the same athletes and you gave them three hours of sleep each night before each game. What do you think performance would look like? Oh, I mean, it's not even think. I've had numerous coaches <laughs> tell me that they don't. And there's a reason for that. And, and it's great because of uh, what we do and the stress levels that we maintain. Uh, I almost think that mandatory personal mental health days should be a, a part of our process that we do. There should be a step down process that you kind of deescalate your mindsets because I think people stay on tense terms for so long. And like you said, the guys that work overtime for them, they don't ever turn it off. So you don't know when it's going to be over. So I don't know how long it took you before you stopped hearing tones, even when there weren't any. But there are 
it's like you take a week's vacation and you still hear tones. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you go to Walmart middle of the night, will, middle of the night, you're like, you jump up because you thought you might have missed something. And uh, with everything that's on the table now and all that we know about, you know, cardiac problems and, you know, just stress kills you silently and high blood pressure, things that you thought there's no way it would ever affect me like that. I'm different. I'm resilient. The reality of it is, is that we're human. Our bodies require sleep and probably even more so as we get older to heal and recover. But also, too, do we take the steps? Do you stretch? Do you, you know, do you, some of the stuff that, that you and I've worked on, you know, it, recovery is an active process as you get over 35. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, you, no one told me. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I treated my body like a rental and uh, it was more like something that I was going to drop off somewhere and had no idea I was going to keep it this long. So uh, with that being said, as you get to be over 35, as and especially in the fire service and any tactical athlete position, you need to make sure you are taking an active role in your own recovery. And I think even with mental health, it takes, a, you know, it, you have to do things that you enjoy that you find happiness in and that you connect with your family as much as you can, because a lot of these guys and, and you know, the folks that uh, have, especially from the large departments, they go and they retire and then they don't have engagement with anyone else. Yeah. Another big problem, which is, which interestingly I've heard some departments where their retirees come back or, you know, either like um, friends of firefighters, they come and counsel, but have you got any retirees that are involved in the mentoring program? Yeah, I, actually, it's pool. amazing. Um, and, I, you know, Mauro Percelli, he, you know, he retired from Orange and he's also been what he's worked here as well with us. Uh, and there are some local guys that come and pay it forward. And it's funny because their perspective, man, it's like EF Hutton. Everyone listens and everybody uh, when they see someone that has accomplished what they want to do, it has more value. It's kind of like that out of town uncle that stops in. And tells your kids something and your kids all of a sudden take it, you know, as I've been telling you that for 10 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feed you and clothe you. And then now you're going to listen to, but again, coaches, uncles, crazy mentors, they tell you something that might stick. And at the end of the day, if we can change one life by what we're doing and be consistent with that process, I think that's, that's how we'll change the community and not, and it's, one person ends up magnifying that mindset is so more than just one person because what you're truly changing is a family and that family can go for generations. And I think that's the mindset that we need to, to look at. And with crew, it's easy because, you know, when people say, OK, well, who are you protecting? Who are you here for? And everyone thinks just the people in the room. And then you ask each of those folks to lay out the pictures of their family members. That's who you're protecting. And that's when this gets real. And that's when it's more than a five person crew. You know, you're changing with these kids. You're changing the way that their family is going to probably be for the next, you know, probably 100 years. Because reality of it is, is we know that if you have crazy firefighters, which we are a little within a few generations, you're probably going to have other crazy firefighters. And it goes on. And I think that's the one thing about our career path that is. It's unique. Those that choose it, they love to serve. They love to be involved. And it changes us as well as our community. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure we, we revisit Tommy. So I'm finishing up writing this book. I've this, I mean, so many names, you know, the, that I'm thinking about what I'm writing about and trying to honor them in different portions of it. Um, and 
one thing I've witnessed in the fire service is that we die from everything. It used to be like, oh, we all die from cancer, from carcinogens. Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. Reedy Creek's lost so many people, they never see fire. So I call, I mean, is it a, is it a factor? Absolutely. Should we be breathing in certain smoke? No. Should we be, you know, sitting next to off-gassing gear? Absolutely not. But is that the only factor? No. And it's, you know, suicide, overdoses, you know, all these horrendous things. Um, now, you just lost Tommy that you talked about earlier. So... Um, yeah, just tell me about, a little bit more about him so we can, you know. We Tommy can. Um, had, I think, just under 24 years with our department, retired. Um, two, year, two years later, he, he passed. And, and Tommy, uh, his uh, death came, you know, crazy and being a young guy. I mean, 49 and a lot of life in him. And anyone who knew Tommy, he took care of himself. But like all of us too, uh, the life we live takes its toll. And when we are hurt and when we're injured and when we're seeking, and here's the problem too, you seek medical treatment and advice. Sometimes it's not always the best. And it's hard for us as first responders to trust anyone. But as you get older and closer toward your retirement, I think that needs to be addressed more and more. We need to be engaged with our healthcare professionals a lot more than an annual basis. I think they need to be teaching guys though early on what to look for as you get ready to retire. Um, with the amount of, you know, the carcinogens is one thing, but how many years did you go with sleep deprivation? How many years did you go with sleep apnea undiagnosed? How many, you know what I'm saying? There's so many things. And with Tommy's situation, um, you know, he, he went to bed with a headache and never woke up. Uh, how many folks are they finding now, especially with untreated hypertension, that vessels don't, you know, do what they're supposed to? Mm -hmm. You can only recover so much. And uh, anyone who knew Tommy knew he had a crazy fun uh, journey. Uh, but what I don't want is it to be in vain in the sense that, uh, like, he wanted to live life to the fullest. So when he passed... Uh, the one thing that I, I was happy to see is that, uh, his kids were able to come together. We didn't, we, we have yet to have a service for them, but to me, they did come together as, and, and it's a hard thing when you, all your kids are in the military and scattered out all over the country to have them all under one roof at one time. And for Tommy, that was his family. His family was the most important thing to him, but Tommy never met a stranger. Anyone who knew Tommy knew that he was the person that, uh, like I said, he's 250 pounds of Tourette's, but at the same time, he was the, probably the most joyful person you would ever meet. And he made you feel so important when you were in front of him that it just, it, he, he brought out the best in people. It was funny is that he was the one that always felt like he was the one on eggshells because of his Tourette's, but it got to a point too, that you had to reassure him that he was in good company and family and that he was safe to let his guard down because anybody who knows anything about Tourette's they have a few choice words and they let them fly from time to time and Tommy you know he was he literally my family I wasn't going to uh you know dishonor anything when when we lost Tommy you know you want answers right away but at the same time we're right in the middle of the COVID situation and and nobody nobody knows you know 
when your day is, but at the same time, you want, uh, everybody wants more time. Just what we talked about earlier. And uh, as a brother, as a friend, you would not meet a better firefighter, someone who was, I mean, the last fire I fought with Tommy, we were inside a uh, lab setting and um, they had a fire that extended through the building into the roof. And we actually had a collapse of uh, the, it had the, had a ceiling collapse is what happened. So all the ceiling and uh, insulation came through on us where we were standing, just happened to be that the drop ceiling fell perfectly between us. So we were trapped in without skipping a beat after two guys that were friends for damn near 30 years we worked our way through it but it wasn't just like okay this is you know there's a little bit of a pucker factor and tommy was right there never dropped the nozzle kept there was never a guy that if you're going to do life with you ever worried about if he had your back or not and the same for uh anyone that worked with him tommy was there and they were for him and to me that's just always going to be where my best friend uh He's going to be missed, but at the same time, I want his uh, his life to be remembered. And we're going to be doing some stuff here in the near future in memory of him. And also for those that are coming after him, as far as the guys that had come into the fire service, I could only hope that half of them have the heart that he did. I mean, the guy put everything he got into whatever he did, and he overcame so many obstacles to get a job in the fire service. So to then, you know, he did a career, retired, and then passed at an early age. Uh, did a lot for this community. I would not imagine my life, what it would be like without him. But, I mean, he's so missed. He was uh, loved by so many people, big and small. And there wasn't really, quote, a small person to Tommy. Because if he met you, he made you feel like a rock star, even if you did nothing more than just say hello. Mm-hmm. Which I did. I think the the few times I met him was either at Team Trauma when mm-hmm. it was out the mm-hmm. other side of town, mm-hmm. and then I I, I want to say he was there at your gym. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well. That's yeah, and that's I mean when we founded the gym together, it was reality time, and uh, like he made me get into the after school business. A lot of people don't know this. I so just was like, let's just run a gym. I don't want to do it. He goes, No, you're good with kids. You you'll do great with it. And I'm like, Really? Uh, so we started after school program. Now you didn't tell me that all his kids were coming. So that's quite a posse in itself. So <laughs> that's the only reason but, yeah, <laughs> I think he needed childcare, but I love the fact that, uh, and if someone trusts you with your kids, they trust you with their life. And, uh, Tommy and I, we traveled the world, uh, had so many fun adventures, but we did life together. And, you know, I will say this, that, uh, I definitely, as a friend, I know that my time with him might have been limited after his retirement, but it was always sincere. It was always, you know, he loved his wife. He loved his family. And he so loved the fire service in terms of the family that he always wanted. I think for most folks, they're going to Tommy. He knocked out some of the biggest names in MMA. However, it's his heart that most people know him for. And folks don't get that, but to meet somebody that on a plane, and I've told this story a couple of times where Tommy would literally give up at, get up after the flight attendant gave the in-service on how to work the seatbelts. Tommy would give it, get up and stand up and do an in-service on Tourette's. 
and it, there's nothing funnier. You've never seen Tourette's at 30,000 feet. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he loved, he loved making people laugh even when they were uncomfortable. And I think that's what I'm going to miss most about him that no matter what he did and we did some crazy stuff and, and that guy has, we could do a whole show on that. Just the episodes of Chris and Tom, because quite honestly, to be 46 now, I'm shocked that I'm here. And, uh, we, we did some crazy stuff together that I thought would definitely have brought us. I figured it was going to be me that went first, to be honest. I never thought it'd be Tommy because I just thought Tommy was going to live forever. Mm-hmm. And as uh, a, a personality that's bigger than life, he, he's going to be missed for many, many years to come. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for te- you know, talking about him. The whole point of this, this podcast is just to try and bring some solutions to some of the the problems that we see and would it have made any difference in his life who knows but we lose so many men and women who i always point out on the drill ground on the grinder on day one are some of the most resilient physically and mentally men and women that we had the honor to stand side by side with and the fact we lose so many in their 40s in their 50s you know i i hope that in their memory that we can also use that as fuel to push change in the fire service too i i thank you so much for having me on the show today and getting a chance to talk and honestly to hang out because to me more folks in the fire service that actually get a chance to exchange ideas and actually share that brotherhood we talk about so often but very seldom we see this is great stuff yeah well thank you so i'm gonna just do some closing questions i want to get your your thoughts on those two First one I always ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. A little bit different than most of your other guests because it's the leadership principles of Jesus. Fantastic. I actually haven't had that one um, recommended. I I a lot, a lot of yeah. Christian men and women on and here. And it's just, it talks about Jesus as a leader and as a straightforward shooter. And I think that's what we could respect, especially in the fire service. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. All right. What about a movie? Ooh, man, it's crazy. Uh, Adam Sandler's always, I, I, I love to laugh. And uh, believe it or not, uh, Grown Ups with my daughter, that's my favorite movie because of the simple fact, no matter where it is in that movie, if we see it together, we have to sit on the couch and hang out. We literally almost watched that today. And I made the mistake of what, that entire watch, not another teen movie. Oh, okay. I forgot how much yeah. nudity <laughs> was it's, in that film. There's a lot of no-no zones in there. Yes, there it is. Ball to ball no-no zones. <laughs> so, yeah, oh. probably in trouble for that if his mother oh. finds out. But anyway, <laughs> what about uh, documentaries? Documentaries, wow. Um, you know what I'm learning here lately, and it's crazy, is that um, I dealt a lot with uh, – some pro wrestling with folks that between working in MMA, you know, Shamrock and um, a lot of guys made the transition back and forth. What I found myself here lately is watching the docu-series on um, the dark side of the ring. or uh, Yeah, dark side of wrestling. Dark side, yeah, yeah. And, and what I'm finding, though, is, is that what I'm finding is athletes that are entertainers. Like, what is it that drives folks? And, uh, of course, Game Changers was such a great, you know, uh, documentary on just the how food affects us forks over knives is always one of my favorites just to remind myself of why our nutrition is such an issue 
Yeah, some great, great films. And I know some of the, you know, the wrestlers have had on, um, yeah, when, when they talk about it, it's, it's well, not I had a chance that, that, uh, Ducell Berto was one of my first coaches and Ducell Berto trained under the great, uh, Carl Gotch, who was known as a grandfather of submission wrestling. Right. But he was also, these guys were also pro wrestlers. So they trained with Dean Malenko and I had a chance to Carl Malenko. These guys that, uh, when MMA was first kicking off, you got to remember, uh, Japan was already doing these things. Uh, they were doing wrestling with slap boxing, with the shoot fighting. And a lot of the shoot fighting were works, but there were a lot of real strikes involved. So these, these quote unquote worked matches were really, they were abusive wrestling is what I would call it nowadays. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was great though, because you got a chance to learn the techniques behind a lot of the things of, of the early days. So it was really cool. Very and having a chance to work with Dory Funk for years, we had a combined gym, got a chance to meet a lot of pro wrestlers in that aspect and teach them submission fighting with to add to their arsenal of real professional wrestling. Yeah. You know, one person I'd love to get on here is um, Paige. Okay. And she was uh, the one that they made that, um, f- is it fighting, fighting in the Family or It's in the Family? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. She's, she's oh, from, yeah. From back she's, home. Yeah. yeah. And that was an awesome story. To me, it's so crazy, though, that pro wrestlers, and I just here lately have taken to this, is more so just their approach to life is you can respect it more because it is a straight up industry that requires total dedication. Yeah. And if you're not dedicated, you will be a short lived personality in in an entertainment business. Absolutely. All right. Well, then next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak Ooh. to the first responders and military of the world? Yes, I actually want to reach out to Dan Caldwell from Tap Out for you and see if we can get him on there, because a lot of people don't realize that Dan was actually a police officer at one point. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because I know Charles Lewis was yes. killed in the car yeah. crash. Wasn't yep, he? he was. Yep. And uh, and even for that matter, Tim uh, would be a great uh, scrape skyscraper when from that team reason why i say those guys is that that they are a lot more than just tap out a lot of people like dan is a mentorship leader now and for business it's crazy how all these fighters are now worked into the threads of the business world now isn't it crazy that a bunch of you know you're thinking fighters are tip traditionally the most broke ones in the, the room mm-hmm. or now they're taking that knowledge and applying it to the business world which they should i mean yeah. they were the the puppets at oh, the yeah. time you know oh yeah well, people making rich and exactly. making money off the back so i wish mma made half of what boxing made mm-hmm. it's such a different game yeah so absolutely all right so then next question um what do you do to decompress decompress here lately has been uh time on the treadmill like to me treadmill time and i can put earbuds in nobody can talk to me i can't get any phone calls and i just uh run or hobble or whatever you want to call it at my (laughs) age um and just find that uh that and the row machine have become uh, my good friends here lately just to kind of help me channel that energy but also just spending time um like this getting a chance to do this is i actually have to schedule time to hang out with friends for the simple fact of having so many progress building projects because the fact of it is is that you always want more time in the day and there's not enough of it and we always still keep finding hours to book with other stuff and this is the stuff that matters most especially as you get older you you have a lot more of a uh, respect for time shared with the people you want to spend it with yeah 
Yeah, I think this COVID thing as well has really shone a light on efficiency. Like, you know, one of the things that blows me away is I can reach out to someone who I know is very well known and very busy and we can have a quick conversation. Like, hey, do you want to do an interview? Yeah, I'd love to. All right, this day? Yeah, that works. Sweet. Done. And I'm like, this would be six meetings secretaries later yeah. and and you bounced off five other filters and you're like what in the world yeah i think Such most a waste of time most of the folks that what covid has done too is is that made people realize what's important in their life because fluff is things that you don't want to deal with it's just there but i mean i've learned too that paying bills doing things that i have to do that hasn't changed but yet the stuff that for time efficiency, even going to the doctor now, the doctor screens you in the parking lot. I'm like, really? Before long, you know, and I, the whole teledoc thing is I'm still not quite sure about. But at the same time, I understand the premise. We just got to make sure we don't lose contact with the fact that we're dealing with people. Yeah. And human contact makes such a big difference in life. Well, I think as well, if, if prevention was given the priority that it should have, doctors would have more time to actually sit down and talk to their patients and get that human element even in a doctor's service. But right now, you're shuttled through like cattle in, you know, some burger factory, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, no, it was funny now when an ER doctor is pretty much followed around with a secretary. Mm -hmm. Scribe. Scribe, I'm sorry, scribe. <laughs> Sounds like a royal uh, function. A <laughs> yes, and the reality of it is, is you're like, you're just documenting craziness. So, and I mean, think about us. Now we live in a day where everything's documented before you even get back to the station. Yeah. And in theory. In theory, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, uh, folks don't know what happened to those reports that are still missing. Uh, the, the thing that still, I haven't, I haven't really asked it very much, but it's still seems insane to me is all the reports I've asked the patient to sign of all the tough books over these years that their signature, <coughs> excuse me, their signature looks nothing like any human being that's over the age of three and a half signature. Right. Like how the hell is that going to hold up? How's a legal document? Yeah. I, you got me, but I, I'm going to tell you that's the way of this world right now. I'm actually shocked that we don't scan a thumbprint or something that's a little bit more indicative of that person. It would be, I think it would be better served than it would be for them to scribble something. Yeah. That or, we don't know who it was scribbled by. Yeah. Or they just refused. That was it. No report done. Yeah. Yeah. We check vials, clickable, you know, the fact you have to spend 40 minutes on a refusal is, is we talk about efficiency. Is documentation is, is the biggest thing that I think for our line of work, you spend more time documenting than you ever do the, the treatment itself. Mm -hmm. You should be training. You know what I mean? Getting better at your job rather than sitting at a desk hunched over a report. And I think that I wish more people trained on their their medical skills as well as their fire skills because then you'd actually have people that were completely, you know, efficient at getting patient care done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's funny how that's divided too. Like we'll do a scenario and they'll pull the dummy out and they're like, all right, I'm done. No, you're not. All right, now do the assessment. You know? Yes. Now, now sink a tube. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? I mean, that's that's the way I think a lot of our fire training should be is if if you do that, it like should it's be a gonna, medical component. Oh, yeah. Well, if you train to do CPR for just the two minutes like you do in ACLS and then you stop, does that mean you got to save or did you, you know, mm -hmm. last time I checked, it's still 30 minutes to the hospital by the time you do CPR from beginning to end. And most folks, you know, they, they treat it, you know, like a scenario, less like a reality. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well. 
I have really enjoyed this conversation. We've gone all over the place. I'm which sorry. I, yeah. I no, but it's, it's, like, it's like trying to corral cats. So no, but I, get it. I love it. I absolutely love it. That's the whole point. But we have touched, I think, on all the areas that I wanted to. Um, if you want to reach out to you, learn more about you, learn about the mentor program, what's the best uh, route? It, those folks that are interested, like if it's local folks that want to get on, it's Ocala Fire is uh, where you find most. But if it's ocalafire.org slash mentor is how folks can message uh, Chris Hickman on um, Facebook and Instagram. Um, and our biggest thing as we move forward is just embracing folks with other views anyone who wants questions answered or actually challenges some of our theories or concepts i'm interested just to see what we can do to work together Mm -hmm. well i mean like what i have seen like i said i I love seeing people that bring solutions to problems and the give team the the boxing gym new york and what you guys are doing with the fire service here that is how we fix these things that are sadly you know all over our television at the moment is we, we invest in the youth as mentors and as parents. I mean, let's not forget that. Um, and then we address some of the systemic problems that are setting some people up for failure, whether it's drug policy or prison systems or, you know, a misdemeanor stopping you from entering the fire service. You know, I think there's another leg of that as well. But I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. We've been chatting almost two and a half hours. Wow. So it's flown by. Wow. I, I appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to, uh, the next 300 and something series of it because you guys this has started off as an idea to watch it take shape to where we are now and watching you in this process has been an amazing journey